WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 336. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host. Broadcasting live from Studio 1105 and the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Fair Lakes, Virginia. Today's show was recorded on the 14th of August, 2018. In today's episode, a stolen Bombardier Q400, a near accident of a Jetstar 777, adult enjoyment device shuts down an airport, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Fighting Fog. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, Flight 336 is ready for pushback. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff. I'm an airline pilot for a legacy airline based in the United States of America. And joining me today to help me uh, analyze, comment on, and answer your great feedback is from across the pond in his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. At last, we're off. I can't believe it. Marvelous. Great to be on the show again. Thank you very much for having me on yet again. Well, I didn't invite you to be here, Nick, but you you just showed up. So... We're just going to. Well, go. I know the secret code. You can never get rid of me now. <laughs> oh, darn it. Okay. Yeah. He has dirt on me, folks. That's for sure. And uh, also joining me now, Steph is not going to be able to join us today. We're sad about it. Dana is not going to be able to join us today. We're sad about that as well. But in their stead, we have some other great folks to help us with the news, commentary, and feedback answering. And let's start with former U.S. Air Force. F-15 Eagle pilot living outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is now currently a captain on the beautiful Boeing 737 for Ajax Airlines. Colonel Jeff Filmuth. Well, Jeff, Nick, I'm glad I'm here. I guess I'm replacing two hosts with one person. (laughs) Yes, you are. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. Well, anyone that can fly a 737 should be capable of being three people at once. Well, at least I fly it. I'm going to push buttons. <laughs> oh, boy. It's already started. <laughs> oh, it has to. Steam valves and so, wires. And honestly, pull, I was thinking that pull. Dana wasn't on the show today, and we were not going to have any of this bickering and fighting about Airbus versus Boeing. <laughs> Clearly, I really wasn't thinking. And also joining us today, singing over here right next to me in my hotel room studio. He's dancing too. You should watch the video. I thought he was signing. <laughs> well, he is signing, yes. <laughs> I was earlier. Uh, this is Robert Fairbairn. He is a professional photographer. He is a, oh, 
darn, our, our guy is like, come, oh, here he is. He's coming back. <laughs> um, he's a professional photographer, corporate photographer. He is a um, private pilot working on his instrument and commercial ratings. And uh, he's been part of the APG community for quite some time. And he's also a Coffee Fun Cadre member <laughs> contributor to the show. His name, as I just mentioned, Robert Fairburn. Hey, everybody. Okay. That's all he's going to say. Great to see you again, Robert. <laughs> Likewise, Nick. Very nice to see you. That's right. So, you know, you've met Robert, uh, Nick, right? Absolutely, yeah. We've drunk beer together. And uh, he uh, picked you up and took you over to the uh, Udver Hazi Center, right? That sounds like it was a date. <laughs> well, according to Robert, it was. And he has a lot of, ch he cherishes the memories. Yes, we, ha we had a great day walking around there. He knows the place marvelously. He's a fantastic uh, guide. If anyone wants to go around and, and find out all the, make sure they don't miss the really interesting little exhibits that they might otherwise wander past, then Robert's the perfect man to go with. We had a great time. Excellent. Yes. An, an aviation aficionado. Absolutely. Or aficionado. And a very nice guy to boot. Yes, he is. And oh, he's also uh, quite uh, the audio guru as well. He uh, helped out today. So he, he saw, he looked at, by the way, you can go to airlinepilotguy.com. Not right now, uh, but at some point, if you want to see my schedule into the future, I put that there so that people, if you see that I'm going to be somewhere near you and you want to get together with me, and if, if I like you enough, I'll actually say, yes, we can have a meetup. And uh, I like Robert. And he said, I saw that you're going to be here for a couple of layovers. And I said, yeah, I think we might be recording the show uh, during one of those layovers. Uh, but um, I'll let you know. So yesterday, uh, he came by the hotel, picked up Ken, who, who will join us, I hope, at some point. Although uh, he was sitting here right next to me, and then he left. He said he had some family matters to take care of. And I really am wondering now whether he's going to come back or not. But anyway, uh, my first officer, Ken, uh, and I, he picked up and we went over to the Dogfish Head Brew House. And it was it was odd because when I, when I walked into the place, I thought, I'm getting this deja vu moment. Like, I feel like I've been here before. And then I realized I had been there before when Steph and Miami Rick and I were up here in, I think it was... 20, it was either 2015 or 2016. It was several years ago for the innovations in flight. And we met, um, the, uh, the Pete, uh, not the PT, the, uh, airplane geeks guys, um, at the, uh, at the air, the innovations in flight. Uh, so the three of us were up here and hanging out. And I think this is one of the, the dogfish head brew house is one of the places that we went. Is that right? Steph? I know Steph is listening. So maybe she can answer that 2015, through 2015. She said 2015. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, that's, that's, I finally went, oh yeah, that's what, that's when we were here. Anyway, that's where we went last night or let, late afternoon. And, uh, I recorded a little bit of audio as I do when I'm on meetups, mostly, most of the time. And so let's hear a little bit of that. There we go. That red light's on, right? <laughs> Thank you. I'll cut this out in post. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> that was a waiter, actually. Yes. Hey, we're here at the Dogfish Brewing. Dogfish, what? Okay, I'm an old Dogfish guy. Head I can't brew house. remember things. Dogfish Head Brew House in somewhere in Virginia. Fairfax, uh, Fair Oaks, Virginia. Fair Oaks, Virginia. I'm on a layover, and uh, this is day one of our three day trip. And uh, Robert Fairburn, Fairbairn, 
contacted me and said, hey, Jeff, I saw your schedule. I see you're going to be in the uh, D.C. area for like two layovers, and let's get together. I said, yes, let's do that. And I told him, I'm not sure when we're going to be recording this week, but it doesn't matter. Just uh, we'll keep in touch. And it turns out that tomorrow, I think, is when we're going to try to do the uh, this week's recording. But anyway, uh, I told um, Ken, my first officer, who's an awesome guy, uh, ex-Air uh, Force, uh, retired Air Force guy flying the super-secret uh, 707 Jetstar AWACS and, and stuff that he's he can't really tell me because he told me he'd have to kill me if he told me any more. So I didn't ask any more questions because I like life. So um, I said, hey, I'm going to meet up with Robert, and we're going to go somewhere and probably drink beer and eat good food. And I said, please come along. And he said, okay. So here we are at the Dogfish Head Brew House. Thank you. And we have had, uh, obviously, uh, I've had a couple of beers. Uh, my first one was this, actually the same one. Uh, this, what do they call it? The 75? There's, they have like a 60-minute IPA, a 90-minute IPA, and if you split the difference and you pour half and half, you end up with a 75. And that's uh, what I'm enjoying here uh, on tap, which is just awesome. And uh, these uh, other folks have been enjoying. Um, Ken has been enjoying this thing that was in a snifter, and I think they call it some kind of a Belgian fruit full fort. Woo! Cheers. Um, 15 to 18% alcohol. Wow. Um, how was it? Oh, it was excellent. Good. So that was Ken. And uh, as I said, this is day one of a three-day trip. He's going to get really, really tired of all this, I'm sure, by the time we finish this trip. But anyway, um, Robert, tell us, tell the community about yourself and uh, um, anything else that you think is pertinent. Hey, folks. I, I think I've spoken to you one other time when Nick was here about six, seven months ago. Uh, I'm a private pilot here in D.C. working on my instrument and commercial uh, and a photographer for a living with a background in audio. So it sounds like Jeff's going to pick my brain a little bit here going forward. But uh, I don't know, a couple years now listening to APG, I fell into the hole and I've gone back and listened to all the episodes. And man, what did I do with all that time? But uh, we're having a couple of nice beers here and enjoying some good company. So what you're telling me is that you are a major sufferer of the APG syndrome. Without question. <laughs> so Ken has no idea what we're talking about. The APG syndrome is people that discover the podcast and then they go back and listen to all the episodes, which is insane. <laughs> because this show, every week, I didn't tell Ken this, it's like a three-hour show. So do the math. And this will be 333 episodes next? Uh, tomorrow will be 336. Six, I'm sorry, I'm off. I, I just had to catch up on a couple I'd missed. Now, Kent, I mean, uh, <laughs> Robert, uh, he might, I don't know, we haven't really talked about this, but he might be actually coming back tomorrow, and he might be a special guest co-host uh, on the show tomorrow. If you'd like, I can be there. Okay, well, I don't want him to do that, so uh, you won't hear him. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, uh, looking forward to that. But anyway, we're trying to uh, do the show tomorrow. Again, we should be back. Tomorrow we go to Atlanta and then back here to uh, Dulles and Fair Oaks at the Hyatt Regency. We're planning on doing the show tomorrow afternoon. Actually, if you're listening to this audio right now, we are actually doing the show because that's when I'm going to play it. It's very complicated. I'm confused, actually. Anyway, so um, 
it's a lot of fun. We've been sharing airplane stories, and of course, that's what this whole thing is about. People that enjoy aviation have a passion for it. Uh, whether you're military background, civilian background, or what, or just somebody who just likes looking up in the sky and looking at whatever airplanes flying by, which is all of us actually, um, it's uh, so awesome to uh, spend time with you. And uh, that's all I'm going to say because you're going to hear me like blathering about something in the show that you're listening to right now anyway. So I'll shut up. Uh, Robert, you want to say anything else before we go? I'm good. Thank you. Ah, what a cop out. And Ken, do you want to say anything else? No, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Dang. These guys don't know how to talk. Okay. That's it. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Back here in the studio. And, uh, oh, look, somebody just joined us. You heard him in that little audio snippet. And it it's not true what I said. I, I didn't really think you were going to come back. Um, so let me uh, play this. Uh, from south of Atlanta. No, he's here, actually, with us in Fairfax, Virginia. He is a, as I mentioned in the... Uh, and that feedback audio, he is a former Air Force officer flying the Jetstar and AWACS airplanes, among others. And uh, he is with Acme Airlines, and he is the first officer on my trip. And we're having a blast. And Well, at least I am. I'm not sure about, <laughs> about Ken. But anyway, Ken Falcom. That's right. Okay, this is where you go into some kind of a dissertation now, Ken. Or you say something more than just, that's true. That's right. Uh, that's mostly accurate. So it's a J-Stars. Oh, J-Stars. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Dang it. not a well-known aircraft by any means. What is a J-Star? They are basically a collection of uh, Boeing 707s that have been converted into radar platforms that look for... Jeff, Jeff, objects. Jeff, stop, stop him because in a moment he's going to have to shoot you. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's and the rest of us as well. <laughs> oh, by the way, I thought it was—I thought it was interesting. You know, I thought, well, when he said seven hundred seven, he thinks like I'm some idiot and I don't understand what the difference is between a seven hundred seven and a KC one thirty five, which is the military version, which is not really a seven hundred seven, right. right? But he says, no, 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 no. These mostly are seven hundred seven. Oh, they all are. Okay, they are all are. So I thought that was something that I learned that uh, I didn't know. So yeah, they all have prior lives prior to being J stars. So it's interesting. Some are more glorious uh, backgrounds than others. And we were talking today about uh, the hazards of being an airline pilot. Uh, One of those hazards, radiation. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I fly this airplane with this huge rotating radar antenna. And I said, well, of course, you must be completely protected from that radiation. (laughs) Right, Ken? Uh, Urban legend is not so much. Yeah. (laughs) At least in the cockpit. So none of the... uh, None of the people that fly the airplane have had any children. Is that true? Oh, as long as you start early in your career. <laughs> okay. My battery is running low. Yeah. The flying Frisbee. Is that what you call it, Jeff? Yeah. So you've, you've had a chance to interact uh, with the AWACS uh, platform before, I guess, Jeff. Oh, just a few times. They used to come to Tinker is the schoolhouse. And uh, when I was at Holloman, uh, we used to play with the students all the time. We called them clue wax because they didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got I've got one up on you there, mate. I've uh, I've control been controlled by the predecessor, the Super Constellation, ah. out of Iceland, which was called by an Aurora from memory, 
So that goes back a bit. That does. I'm not that old. <laughs> no, my head. All right. Well, anyway, I'm thankful that you came back. Um, oh, you yeah. had to, to leave and take care of a personal matter, which is something that we have to do sometimes as pilots when we're away from home. And so I hope everything is okay. Yes. Yeah, cool. That's fine. Excellent. And uh, so, as I said, um, Ken has uh, been my first officer for this trip, and we've been having a good time. Good weather and good flying so far. And yeah. uh, one more day tomorrow, we have uh, three legs. Uh, we go back to Atlanta. Um then do a Jacksonville, Florida turn, and we're we sh- we're supposed to be home before noon. And uh, yeah, one more so. day, Ken. Just one more day. <laughs> yeah, and then this this hell will be over. Anyway, yeah, because I'm really a bad, a hard person to fly with. I'm very, very, you know, just hard nosed and very demanding. You know me. We, we, well, we we re- realize that. Yeah, for sure. But actually, when I'm in the cockpit, I'm a much more laid back guy. So. Then I have to if be with people like yeah. yeah. I have to be with people like with Nick, and then he gets me my blood pressure up. <laughs> anyway, not really. That's why um, it's a weekly show, not a daily show. That's right. Yeah, they would kill me if it was a daily show. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, as I said, glad to have you back with us. So um, tell me, Colonel Jeff, sure. and tell all of us uh, what have you? It's been a while since you've been on the show. Was the last time uh, the time that we were all crammed? In your tiny little hotel room in uh, uh, an Atlanta high-rise hotel, how many did you say were in that room? There was like was ten it? of us in there <laughs> on the bed. A, on the yeah, I mean, there was, and Dana was three of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, Dana, I didn't say that; he did, and you're not here to defend yourself, so I'm I'm sorry. I mean, Dana always talks about how big he is. When I met him that first time, I, he's I, he's a lot taller than I thought he was going to be. Yeah, he's a he's a big man, and and I don't mean that. Man. Yeah, he's just a big guy, you know. Big, I mean, I, Nick's big enough, and Dana's bigger. So, <laughs> but uh, no, I've been uh, no, I was did one more show after that one uh, from Steph's house. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that now. I'm an old man; I don't remember things very well. But uh, so anyway, glad to have you back. And uh, there's a good, very good reason. Not only because we love Jeff, uh, everybody in the APG community does, and he's a very knowledgeable person, especially regarding uh, flying the F-15. I keep looking at the wrong camera. There's a camera right there. And uh, he is going to help us analyze something that we're going to talk about, uh, the first item in the news folder. And I think most of you listening have some idea of what we're talking about, a little event that occurred in the Pacific Northwest in the United States here just a few days ago. So hang on for that. And uh, anything else you want to tell us, Jeff, in the intro portion? What's been going on with your uh, life? Uh, anything? Let's see. I just got back from Vegas last night where it was only 105. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so. Ouch. Yeah, that's hot. Yeah. And then I, I leave tomorrow. I've got a nice layover on the Riverwalk in San Antonio tomorrow night. Ooh, nice. Yeah. So okay. that, that'll be pleasant. It's not even going to be 100 there. So that'll be much nicer layover. And it's a nice long one, too. That's what she said. All right. Thank you for. <laughs> oh, did I walk into that one? You did. <laughs> and, and thank you for not saying anything else while I tried to find that sound sound effect. Uh, Nick, uh, yes, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, uh, I have just come out of the simulator uh, a day ago, uh, having uh, been ripped apart, ripped to shreds, uh, but uh, at least I passed. So having uh, actually not. Uh, 
been in an airplane for five months, not been on A330 for six months, uh, I am now apparently uh, able to go and jump in a jet again. I've got a couple of training trips uh, just to make sure that everything uh, that has changed has been well briefed. And uh, so I'm off to uh, New York the day after tomorrow. Uh, and then um, next month, I've got a, a uh, uh, assessment of competency. Uh, I'm going to Dubai. Uh, I haven't been there for a long time, actually. So uh, that'll be kind of fun. I don't mind Dubai. Nice hotels there. Um, and then I, assuming everything goes tick VG, which I'm, you know, generally hoping, uh, I'll be back on the line and... Uh, I've got a, I think I've got a New York and an Atlanta coming up. So, uh, Ooh. wow, we might get a chance to drink beer together. And, of course, Dr., the wonderful Dr. Steph and, and Dana Rafis around and not crawling over some mountain or out in his party boat or on a, on a motorcycle trip somewhere. Yes, that's where Dana is today. He uh, regrets to inform us. Uh, he said he's going to miss being on the show with us today, but he is on his uh, – big Harley Davidson motorcycle somewhere in the mountains and probably Tennessee or North Carolina or something like that. So he, uh, he's on vacation because that man deserves a vacation because he's been working so hard. Yeah. We know where his priorities lie. Yes. So, so Nick, so, you mentioned something about, uh, going on, you, something with your eyes you had to get checked. Is that, did that come yeah, out? Okay? Tomorrow, this is just a minor thing. I, I've ha had an eye condition, which uh, affects this hereditary condition called glaucoma. It oh. affects the pressure inside the eye. So, uh, I don't know, quite a few people of my age, uh, get it. Uh, and, uh, if you are sort of getting to the region of 45 and older, even if uh, it's not in your family, I would recommend that you get your optician to do an eye pressure check and keep an eye on it because it's an insidious problem that can destroy your vision without you really realizing what's going on until it's all a bit late. Luckily I picked up on it very early and I have to have regular checks, uh, from, uh, the medical division of, uh, my licensing authority. Uh, and one of those checks has revealed just a tiny little bit of damage to one of the retinas. So are uh, we having further tests and one of those will be tomorrow and I'm sure it will be fine, but uh, it's just one of those things that I could warn people about to keep an eye out for. And I am forty like that. Oh, very good. Frank's really <laughs> dark, really, really dark sunglasses, Nick. Nah. When I had that laser incident, I didn't know yeah. I could dilate my eyes that big. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I they, they do sometimes. I mean I've 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 had this condition for um what, twenty odd years. So uh yeah, I have to have these tests regularly. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. That's I <laughs> I was trying to do something else. Go unnoticed. He meant that. <laughs> I really do love you, man. I was trying to do. Uh, I was trying to He's type something nice on another bloke. computer, and uh, yeah, I used did. the wrong keyboard. My bad. Why have you got that funny shade of red? <laughs> because I really didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he wanted, he wanted to match the other two guys in the room, Nick. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. I'm just going to give up. I'm, I was trying to set this thing up so I could do various uh, screens on the uh, on the Hangout video. So like when we're doing audio feedback and all these other things. Um, but uh, forget it. It's just too much work. <laughs> it's too complicated for me. Yeah. You've got all too right. many buttons in front of you, mate. You I should do. try flying an Airbus. There's only one. Yeah, two. Yeah, maybe. Land. <laughs> oh, no, they've simplified it now. You just press the same button twice. <laughs> 
Oh. It's a toggle. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, we had too many people pressing the land button when they meant to take off. It's, it's a real problem. <laughs> the fleet was grounded. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So that's all I can think of, uh, you know, but on this trip, we, we did the trip. I mean, the, uh, last recording relatively recently. So, uh, not a lot happened. Nice, quiet weekend at home, had two days, two days off and, um, got a little work done at home and, uh, yeah, it was repacked the suitcase and got a chance to come back out on this trip. And why am I, am I hearing myself somewhere else? Sounds like a, okay. All right. We're okay. Um, now I think might be time to go ahead and talk about the coffee fund and then we'll move on to the news after that. So Oh great, I need a beer. Okay, go get a beer. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea. And the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Now, Robert, you can sing along, too, if you'd like. <laughs> um, so, hey, the Coffee Fund is, of course, our way to acknowledge those who have joined the Coffee Fund cadre. And this man right here sitting next to me, Robert, is part of that Coffee Fund cadre. We do appreciate that. And a couple different ways you can contribute to the show financially. One is the classic method, and that's a basically through PayPal. You can do a one-time or a recurring donation there. And since the last episode, we've had donations from Max Nunn, Fred Sampson, and Sealview. I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name, Sealview, because you didn't get a, give me a... Phonetic. Th- thank you. Nikolescu. Phonetic pronunciation. Like Nikulescu. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good, I think. Pretty close, probably. And the other way to do it is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And since the last episode, we've have some new producers jay johnson deanna trickle ron Steele, jared beck and da, 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 a new assistant senior executive producer Stephen nick nelson so thank you all of our new patrons to the show if you want to find out more about this head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee join the coffee fund cadre you'll be glad you did and we are we'll be glad too and by the way, just in case, um, sometimes the way Patreon communicates with me about new donors or patrons to the show, I don't always sometimes get the message. And uh, Jay uh, wrote to me and uh, sent me some feedback as well. But he said, hey, uh, I didn't hear my name mentioned. And he said, not that I'm really necessarily expecting it, but just wanted to let you know I'm part of the Coffee Fund cadre. And I went, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to miss you. But if you're one of those people out there and you've made a donation to the show and I have not mentioned you, please contact me and let me know. Because as you know, here on the show, we're always striving for 50% accuracy. All right. And that's enough of that. So I think the best thing to do now is to hit this little button here. And that means we're going to be talking about the news. Stand by for news.
May I just say something before we continue with the news? You guys are hilarious in that chat room. <laughs> when these things, these bumpers are playing, I get a chance to actually look and see what you're writing. And I can really, truly tell that you love me. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, let's start off with uh, some feedback, not feedback, some news that is not very good news. And I'm also saying, oh, here it is. Okay. So uh, this is an incident that just occurred. I think it was uh, late Friday evening. And then all day Saturday, everybody was talking about it. And it was uh, an interesting incident, accident uh, happening uh, in the Pacific Northwest. A, uh, a man uh, who was a ground service employee for Horizon Airlines uh, ended up getting inside one of their Q400 aircraft and just and somehow he knew how to start the thing which and I, i've said the ken and i were talking about this if ken and i had sat in that q400 we probably would have still be sitting there trying to figure out how to start the q400 but apparently with this uh, apparently world he, he of pushed it, he pushed it back first well i've heard stories where he pushed it back first because he he operates a pushback tug but uh i've also heard stories where the way it was parked it really didn't need a push uh, okay but regardless, it doesn't matter. He got in the airplane after either after he himself pushed it or because it wasn't at a gate. It was on a hard stand. It was on the north side of the airport uh, in a, a cargo ramp area slash maintenance area for uh, Horizon Air. And he gets in it and he starts it up and taxis it out to runway one six center and takes off without, of course, any approval. And. I have a little bit of audio that kind of, you know, brings us to that point where he has uh, now started the airplane, has taxied out. Apparently, I'm guessing because uh, of the comment that one of the uh, pilots makes here on this audio that uh, I'm guessing he may have left the parking brake set because, well, you'll hear why. I think that's what happened. So let's hear the uh, air traffic control communication at the Seattle, uh, the SeaTac International Airport. On Charlie, uh, lining up one way, one six center for your call sign. The dash gate on runway one six center for your call sign. The dash gate on runway one six center for your call sign. Who is the dash gate holding on runway one six center? Horizon twenty seven twenty eight, verify you're in the left turn. We're in the turn, Horizon twenty seven twenty eight. Horizon twenty seven twenty eight, thank you. Contact departure. Yeah. Departure, see ya. Done, Alaska. Who's the aircraft on runway one six center? His wheels are focused left and right. Uh, as we are right now, he's rolling down the runway. All right, I'm not even talking to him. He came flying out of the uh, out of the uh, cargo area in front of Delta. Which cargo area? One or two? The one that's closest to the north. Sorry, you need to call. Okay, so uh, I apologize for this audio. This is uh, from, um, I think most likely from ATC, uh, liveatc.net, which is a, uh, a network of folks out there that uh, volunteer to record, to have scanners set up to record these aviation VHF frequencies. Sometimes the way the antennas are set up doesn't really bring in a very clear signal. And, uh, and this is what we have to work with. And I did try to clean that up a little bit, but it wasn't very helpful. So it was kind of hard to hear, but basically an Alaska flight says, um, 
you know, this guy in front of me just cut in front of me and is, is taking off. Looks like the uh, the left and right wheels are smoking. So that's why I think that maybe he probably just pushed the power up and didn't even release the brakes. And so those brakes are probably about to burn up. Uh, but he takes off. And uh, one another voice comes on and says, I think you need to scramble somebody. And they said, yep, we're, we're on it. So uh, let's hear a little bit of uh, the communications uh, a little bit further south south down in Portland, Portland International Airport. I'm going to rock 401, request heading 340. 401, 340. 401, left 340. 401, you're not going to an area of high train. I can give you as low as 8,000. What altitude would you like? 401, request 8,000. 401, just to maintain 8,000. Uh, the name of the pilot uh, of the hijacked aircraft is Rick, 
and they want you to contact approach on 119.2. Hey, Rick, and uh, is Rick on 119? 41.42, affirmative Rick. His name is Richard. Rick is what he's going by, and 119.2. 15Cs out of the uh, Portland International Airport, um, and I'm trying to recall exactly the uh, unit they're with, 142nd or something like that. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, I think that's correct. Okay, it's a guard unit. It's an air guard. Okay, and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about this whole intercept thing because uh, Colonel Jeff has some experience with this, at least flying the Eagle. And did you do some intercepts as well? Uh, yeah, we we trained for this. I ever. Never actually did any intercepts, but we trained for them a lot. Especially and I know that Nick did uh, as uh, an RAF uh, F-4 pilot, um, not you know in this kind of a situation, but uh, some Russian airplanes. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly right. But uh, no, I never had to do any civilian airliner interceptions. Um, not not of this nature. It was this was sort of thing was before my time or after my time, I should say. Yeah. So let me do this before we start talking about all that, because I'm sure that's going to be an int interesting discussion. Let's play a little bit of the audio from this um, guy who uh, maybe not all there psychologically, uh, may have had some issues. Uh, and of course, we'll probably talk about that as well. Uh, but uh, some audio from him. And this is all compressed from a lot of audio. And uh, there was a lot of other communications involved. And that's why it seems like some of the conversation here and the audio that you're going about to hear is a little bit stilted. And that's because Again, liveatc.net with these scanners, they scan multiple frequencies, and whatever frequency happens to be the strongest is what it starts recording, and anything else is um, not heard. And so we'll hear a little snippets of the conversation between air traffic control, uh, another pilot in a Horizon jet, I believe, on the ground at SeaTac, and also the uh, the guy that was uh, that had not really hijacked the airplane because that's not really technically a hijacking, but stole the uh, airplane uh, from SeaTac, the international airport, and took it for a joyride, and then eventually uh, ended up killing himself. But let's listen to some of that. Man, I'm a ground service agent. I don't know what that is. Start it up and get it to go. Uh, in a couple hours, I guess. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't know how to land it. I wasn't really planning on landing it. 
knows how to fly one of those aircraft, but uh, we'll see what we can do and get you in contact with somebody. All right, um, yeah, I just kind of want to do a couple maneuvers to see what it can do before I put it down, you know? And so I can uh, reach out to you a little easier. A little bit. I'm sorry, say that again? Sorry, uh, my mic came off. I threw up a little bit. Uh, you know, I, uh, hold on. Shoot. Man, I'm sorry about this. I hope this doesn't ruin your day. Just flying the plane around, you seem comfortable with that? Oh, hell yeah, it's a blast, man. I played video games before, so I, uh, you know, I know what I'm doing a little bit. Okay, and, uh, and you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? Nah, everything's peachy. Peachy clean. Just did a little circle around Rainier. It's beautiful. Um,. I think I got some gas to go check out uh, the Olympics, and uh, yeah. Okay, and uh, Rich, do you know, uh, are you able to tell what altitude you're at? I threw up all inside of it. It's bad. Too fast to join. I was thinking about it, and then uh, probably a good thing I didn't. Yeah, that's all mumbo jumbo. I have no idea what all that means. I wouldn't know how to uh, punch it in. I'm, I'm uh, off autopilot. Okay, see ya. No, I'm not taking you to any jets. I'm actually keeping you away from aircraft that are trying to land at SeaTac. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I don't want to screw with that. I'm glad, uh, glad you're not, uh, you know, screwing up everyone else's day. On account of me. I'm, uh, I'm down to 2,100. I started at like 30-something. Rich, you said you're at uh, 2,100 pounds of fuel left? Yeah, uh, I don't know what the burn, burn itch, burnout is like on uh, uh, on takeoff, but uh, yeah, it burned quite a bit faster than I expected. Okay. There is the uh, the runway just off your right side in about a mile. Do you see that? That's the uh, that's the uh, that's McCord uh, Field. Oh man, those guys will rough me up if I uh, tried landing there. I think I, I think I might mess something up there too. I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, hopefully, oh, they probably got anti-aircraft. No, they don't have any of that stuff. Uh, we, we're just trying to find a place for you to land safely. Yeah, not quite ready to bring it down just yet, but holy smokes, I gotta, I gotta stop looking at the fuel because it's going down quick. Okay, Rich, uh, if you could, if, could you start a left-hand turn, and uh, we'll, we'll take you down to the uh, southeast, please. This is probably uh, like jail time for life, huh? I, I mean, I would hope it is for a guy like me. Well, Rich, we're not, we're not going to worry or think about that, but could you start a left-hand turn, please? And uh, he's going to try and help you out here a little bit, okay? And I think you might have some questions. Rich, uh, I've got a pilot on with us. And uh, if you got any questions, you can ask him now. Hey, uh, well, first off, you're a little, a little breaking up a bit. Um, maybe I'm too far away. What's the distance on his frequency? Uh, you are a very calm, collect voice. 400 apparently is the uh, a grounds crewman <laughs> with uh, with Horizon, I guess. And uh, right now he's just flying around. And uh, he just needs some help controlling his aircraft. 
very good. Now, I mean, I don't need that much help. I played some video games before. Uh, I would like to figure out how to get this cabin altitude. Like, I know where the box is. I would like to get some, uh, make it, make it pressurized or something so I'm not so lightheaded. Chris, what's your altitude? Yeah, I don't know anything, uh, I don't know anything about the autopilot. I'm just kind of hand flying right now. Okay, you know how fast you're going? Uh, minimum wage. We'll, we'll uh, chalk it up to that. Maybe that'll uh, grease the gears a little bit with the higher up. Maybe, uh, yeah. I think I lost you behind some hills a little bit. I'm coming back, though. Damn it, Andrew! People's lives are at stake here! Now, Rich, don't, don't say stuff like that. Nah, I just told you, I'm not, I don't want to hear no one. I just want you to whisper sweet nothings into my ear. That'd be better than uh, trying to land it. Like, I know how to put the landing gear down. Put your uh, your power at probably 50%. That'd be the two top gauges right in the center on that glass uh, display there. And then press, uh, well, tell me, uh, do your power at 50% or tell me what you got. Yeah, I got it like flight idle. Well, that's too slow. Bring it up to like 50. Their side on the bottom, it says HDG, and it's got a little blue uh, M on it. You can crank that around, and, uh, and uh, you know what, tell you what, let's just do this. Um, push, you see the HDD, HDG button uh, right by that little thumb wheel? No, you can do that with these things. Uh, so, what would, if you were to do it, how would you do it? Well, I'd try to figure out how to use the autopilot first. Not concentrate so much on flying the airplane. Hey, you think if I land this successfully, uh, Alaska will give me a job as a pilot? Uh, you know, I think they would give you a job of doing anything if you could pull this off. Yeah, right. Nah, I'm a white guy, eh? Yeah, you do your man. Hey, F.A. guy, Andrew, you on? Yeah, I'm still here, Rich. Bad, but kind of not either. Uh, if you wanted to land, probably the best bet is that uh, runway just ahead and to your left. Again, that's uh, McCord Field. Um, if you wanted to try, that might be the best way to set up and see if you can land there. Or just like the uh, pilot suggests, another option would be over Puget Sound into the water. Dang, uh, did you talk to McCord yet? Because I don't think I'd be happy with you telling me I could land like that because I could mess some stuff up. Well, Rich, I already talked to him, and uh, just like me, what we want to see is you not get hurt or anybody else get hurt. So, like I said, if you want to try to land, that's probably the best place to go. Hey, I want the coordinates of that orca with the, you know, the mama orca with the baby. I want to go see that guy. Behind you, there is another aircraft. Would you be willing to talk to them if they're on the frequency and maybe they can help you land? Six, uh... Back in the water. Hey, what's the, what's that airport right there behind me? Like to my left. Okay, Rich, well, first of all, we, we just need you to keep flying the aircraft. And so if you could just stay there and keep flying the aircraft. The, the uh, the airport you just passed over on your left, that's the uh, Tacoma Narrows Airport. I mean, that's also an option if you want to try going there. 
But uh, like I said earlier, McCord, that's a, that's a bigger runway if you wanted to try to land there. Oh, that's disgusting. One sec. Hey, Rich, this is Captain Bill here. We're still uh, listening. My airplane's doing uh, just fine. How's yours? Like I said, it, it would be a better option, I think, if you tried to land it or even land it on the water. Yeah. Hey, is that pilot on? I want to know uh, what this weather's going to be like in the Olympics. Well, if you can see the Olympics, the weather's good. I can see the Olympics from my window, and it looks pretty good over there. All right, because I, I hit some, uh, felt like turbulence around right near, but there was no clouds hardly. Oh, uh, that's just the uh, the wind blowing over all the bumpy surfaces there. Oh, copy that. Yeah, but Rich, if you could, uh, maybe start a left-hand turn, start turning back around, because if you get too close to the Olympics, uh, you won't be able to hear us anymore. Turn back around here. Like I said, I just want to keep talking to you. And if you keep going towards the Olympic Mountains, we won't be able to hear each other. Turn back around so we can uh, stay in contact with you. i got a lot of people that care about me, and uh, it's going to disappoint them to, to hear that I did this. Um, I would like to apologize to each and every one of them. Um, just a broken guy. Got a few screws loose, I guess. Never really knew it until now. Um, just, you know. Is that pretty easy to come by? Man, have you been to the Olympics? These guys are gorgeous. Holy smokes. Yeah, I have been out there. It's it's, it's always a nice drive. I think I might have a, a beer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bet you do. I haven't done much hiking over there. And uh, But if you could, if you could start a left turn and uh, turn back towards the east. I know you're getting a good view there, but uh, if you go too much further in that direction, I won't be able to hear you anymore. All right. Um, hey, pilot guy, can this thing do a, uh, a backflip, you think? I'm going to land it. Uh, like... Uh in a safe, safe kind of manner. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm gonna try to do a barrel roll, and if that goes good, I'll just go nose down and call it a night. Well, Rich, before you do that, uh, let's think about this. I got another uh, pilot coming up, Pilot Joel, here in just a minute or two, I hope, and uh, we'll be able to give you some advice on what to do next. We call it a bug. It's uh, like a little blue rectangle. It's just somewhere around the compass. Do you see that? Um, just kind of lightheaded, dizzy. Um, man, and you know, the sights went by so fast, too. I was thinking, like, I'm going to have this moment of serenity, you know, I'll be able to take off in all the sights. And, uh, there's a lot of pretty stuff, but. Uh, they're prettier in a different context. The right-hand side uh, above you, on the right-hand side air conditioning panel, you'll see it. It's a big panel. There's three switches along the top of it. Make sure all three of those switches are in the down position, facing the nose of the airplane. I don't know where I've been at this whole time. Okay, Rich, thank you. 2,500 to be exact. Okay, thank you. And do you have an idea of how much fuel you have left? Uh, man, not enough. Not enough to get by, uh, like, uh, 760, 760 pounds. Uh, 
going to do this barrel roll real quick. Uh, well, no need to do that. If you could just start a turn to the right, and then I'll tell you when to stop turning, and then you can keep it level from there. I wouldn't mind just shooting the shit with you guys, but it's all business, you know. I feel like I need to be, what do you think, like 5,000 feet at least to be able to pull this barrel roll off? You get hurt either. Okay. Uh, if you could, I see you're still turning to the right. You want to maybe start making a turn back to the left a little bit? You'd be a hero if you could pull off a landing. Um, I'll get you going as soon as I can. The aircraft in front of you is talking to an airplane in the air, um, so he can't move quite yet, but I'll get you going as soon as I can. Oh, got it. Okay, thanks a lot. Yep. Start another right-hand turn. All right, Rich, this is Captain Bill. Congratulations. You uh, did that. Now let's, uh, let's try to land that airplane safely and not hurt anybody on the ground. All right. Ah, damn it. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to. I was kind of hoping that was going to be it, you know? After long, I feel like one of my engines is going out or something. Okay, Rich, uh, if you could, you just want to keep that plane right over the water, maybe keep the aircraft nice and low. Okay, so that's um, all the audio we have uh, regarding the uh, person who, uh, troubled person who was... Uh, flying this airplane and uh, one of the last things he said he, he said something about he thought that one of the engines might be shutting down I have a feeling it might be fuel starvation because when he last said the fuel state of the airplane uh, if that was accurate i think he said something about 760 pounds that's not a lot of fuel and uh, i have a feeling that's that might be what actually brought him down the fact that when you lose an engine on a turboprop airplane if you have no experience whatsoever yeah. flying twin twin engine airplanes you're going to have a hard time keeping control of that although i must say if you've seen any of the video of this incident that was some pretty impressive flying i think he was doing some amazing <laughs> amazing aerobatics with that uh, airplane and especially that one that we see that uh, is coming down and and pulls out of the dive uh, just maybe a hundred feet off the uh, off the water um you know, it's a shame that he ended up passing away in this whole event because it looks like that guy had some natural flying talent, I think. I was shocked. I, I mean, I that he just played video games. I figured he was either had a private license after watching the videos or a big time simmer. I mean, yeah, I was guessing video games meant hundreds of hours in flight simulator or something. I think yeah. he must have been a flight simulator guy because yeah. there are some very detailed uh uh, modules for some of the flight simulator programs for the Q400. And that's, I think he must have been doing those to know, have any idea of how to start the engines on that uh, Q400. I mean, it's been a long time since I started a turboprop, but I remember it was not that simple to do because you got to do stuff with the unfeathering the props. And, you know, there's different things you have to do that you don't do with a jet to get the engine started, how you get them turning and everything. So it's not something I think you could just go out and do by yourself. Uh, and, you know, when he says he's only got like 780 pounds of gas or something like that, at best, that's only like five minutes of fuel at best. There was some speculation out there um, in the in the media and the social media that uh, the uh, F-15 uh, jets uh, shot him down. But I think that everybody and everything that I've seen, uh, they've said, nope, we, we didn't fire a shot. And it was all him. He uh, crashed on his own.
Yeah. I Colonel Jeff, were those guard units uh, hold QRA? Would they have been armed aircraft? Oh, yeah, they're armed. They're probably okay. uh, probably a minimum of uh, two by two, two AM9s, two AM Rams, and a, and a full load of gun. Um, I don't think they'd ever use the gun because uh, it's, you don't know where the bullets are going to go and they go too far. Um, you know, and the, uh, whether it's the AIM-9 or the AMRAM, either one of them is going to hit it. It's not going to miss. He can't maneuver enough to defeat either one of those. And it's enough heat signature, enough of a radar signature for either one of those missiles to not have a problem. No, so no, uh, I, I think like Jeff, uh, I'm confident that they didn't shoot him down and they'd have, you'd have had plenty of footage. You'd have some yeah. would have. And if it had that. been a missile, the airplane would have been in, in tiny little pieces. It wouldn't have been in all yeah. in one spot. It would have been scattered over a wide area. Yeah, you might have seen something I didn't, but I, I, know, I didn't see that anywhere in the media. I did see it all over Reddit and chat rooms that people speculating that the F-15s had shot at them, but I didn't actually see any media outlets say that. Yeah, yeah I, okay. I saw at least one speculating that perhaps the F-15 shot them down, and it was uh, I knew they hadn't just from well, watching the video. According to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, yeah, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado. Uh, they they issued a statement. They said the uh, Federal Aviation Administrative report reported a stolen Bombardier Q400 aircraft from Horizon Airlines in Seattle, uh, Seattle Tacoma Airport. Requested DoD assistance. North American Aerospace Defense Command uh, NORAD launched F15 two F15C alert aircraft from Portland. Uh, that those uh, aircraft proceeded to intercept the Q-400 in the vicinity of McCord Air Force Base. The fighters were directed to fly supersonic to expedite the intercept. So that must, you know, you could tell the seriousness when you heard uh, Rock 4-1 and Rock 4-2. These guys knew that this was not an exercise. This was really a no-kidding uh, incident happening. And I think everybody at first probably thought this had something to do with, oh, no, is this another 9-11? Uh, this is an airliner that has taken off without clearance and who knows where this thing is going. So I'm sure that that's the initial reaction, like, oh, gosh, we got to get these things scrambled. We need to have somebody up there to shoot this terrorist down. And then I think they finally realized that the guy was just a nutball. Well, I, I don't mean to use the term nutball. Um, someone who was not psychologically stable. And uh, and then I think they, they, they changed their tune there. But, you know, they scrambled the jets. It was a serious thing. They used supersonic speed to get to uh, that area. In fact, there were some uh, reports of folks uh, in the flight path that reported sonic booms, and they, they were probably a little startled by that. Uh, but you know, it's got to be a pretty serious thing to give clearance to uh, fly supersonic, right, Jeff? Oh, yeah. You just don't do that uh, without, you know, clearance. It's it's a big deal. <laughs> okay. So did, did that bring back uh, memories to both you, uh, Captain Nick, and Captain Jeff uh, when you were oh, yeah. flying fighter aircraft and doing intercept uh, missions? Was that, was that something like, okay, yeah, I, I almost feel like I'm there? Well, Nick, when you sat alert, how, how much time did you normally get before? Uh, we had a few no notice, so that would have been from our normal relaxed 10 minutes readiness. Um, usually, uh, we got sometimes an hour's notice, so you know you'd uh, you know you had time to put your gear on and come to cockpit readiness, and then get scrambled uh, from five minutes at cockpit readiness. Um, so you know we we did both, uh, but never had I uh, had to make the kind of decisions that these guys were doing because you know if one of us 
had to go and engage an aircraft, we'd be starting World War Three. This was the Cold War, and we we didn't ever worry about having to engage uh, guys who had stolen aircraft. That just never really entered the equation. No one had ever done it in living experience, really, uh, that we had gone out and intercepted. It would have been um, quite a remarkable event to have to have done this. But you could tell just listening to the auntie of these two guys, they were all business, but I think that they and the uh, and Nora showed remarkable restraint because they had plenty of opportunities to engage him and bring him down. He was over the water for a while, and they could have brought him down there. Uh, but I think everyone was hoping that he would come to his senses, yeah. and uh, he looked like he had the skill to bring the airplane down, but you know, safely, uh, at least uh, you know, on a runway reasonably. But he. He was not in the mood to do that. I think he had only one thing in his mind, and he was going to have as much, in inverted commas, uh, fun as he could before he took his life. And and even when he did that, I I have a strong feeling that he wasn't going to take anyone with him. He was going to find a piece of terrain that was not populated. Um, because that's effectively where he ended up. He ended up in a reasonably quiet end of a peninsula, didn't he? Yeah, there was only a few uh, buildings on that island at all, and he had yeah. the unpopulated end of But that alert was in New Mexico, and uh, we would uh, do a lot of training against low slow because we were look, actually looking for drug runners. And uh, so we did a lot of practice intercepts against uh, like 172 size targets. And uh, so, and it's not as simple as you think. Um, we're sitting there, you know, and the horn goes off, and you have you know, three to six minutes to get off the ground. And just so uh, the listeners understand, the airplanes are sitting there. They're sitting in a shelter. They've been completely pre-flighted. Your harness is already in the this, this seat. Your helmet is sitting on the canopy rail. The horn goes off. You're already wearing your G-suit. You already have your flight suit on. You're dressed. And you're just running to the airplane. And as uh, as this works out, as you climb up the ladder, the crew chief is right behind you. And as you slide into the cockpit, your right arm's going through one harness, uh, one shoulder of the harness, and you're reaching over and pulling the lever that starts the APU. As you reach through with your left arm to put the other side of the harness on, you're starting the right side of the right engine. The ladder's gone. As soon as that right engine started, the canopy's coming down, the left engine's getting started. Uh, the, the pins are being pulled as you're starting. And as soon as that uh, second engine started, you're moving and you're off the ground in full afterburner and you don't even know where you're going yet. You have a discrete frequency and they know these guys knew that it was an active scramble immediately. The first thing they're going to hear, this is an active scramble. This is not a training mission. Because uh, the first thing you hear is the, is the, the NORAD controller or the command agency, whoever you're talking to telling you where you're going and what you're doing. So they had a pretty good idea right off the bat that they were going out to intercept things, something for real. This was not training. Uh, and I'm sure the uh, adrenaline rush is probably pretty high. Um, one of the things he says, he asked the controller for a bra. He's not talking about ladies' clothing. <laughs> I was wondering about that. I was it's, going, bra? What the he heck wants, He wants he a bra about? report. It's bearing, range, and altitude. Oh, He's okay. asking her for a point out to the target. Um. So that's just some of the terminology. Uh, she obviously didn't understand it. Uh, she obviously didn't understand a couple of the other things he said, like 
when fighter guys talk about pushing to a frequency, you're telling the other guy to change channels. Uh, when I, now, when I flew the F-15, we did not have VHF radios. We only had uh, two UHF radios, uh, which is completely different bands than what uh, it's like AM versus FM in your car stereo. So uh, you can't you can't do the other one. So it's a new mod to the airplane they've had since 9-11 that they can do that. And it is a, a little bit limited from my understanding is. I'm not sure how limited it is, but uh, it's a lot more than I had anyway. Um, POI is uh, plane of interest. Point of intercept is or what they're, that's what they're trying to do. That. So they've intercepted the guys, what they're trying to tell. You know. Yeah, I couldn't tell they were saying POI or TOI1. Uh, POI. Okay. Point of Thank intercept. Um, so having... You know, one of the when we when I sat alert in Korea, we sat alert, and the big threat there was AN2s, which is a it looks like a 172 on steroids. It's a single engine, high wing. They can put like 15 paratroopers in this thing. We're Spetsnets kind of guys, special ops kind of guys. The North Koreans could, and it's it flies really slow, and they're trying to fly slower than the F-15 radar can see, which is not easy to do. Um. Everything in the in the F-15 radar is done by Doppler shift. We have a very low end and a very high end. Um, and to fly out of either end is pretty much impossible anymore with the new advances in avionics. But they were tough to intercept because they're going so slow. Was, you would blow right by them. So you would normally set up like a wheel pattern. And that's why they're asking for the airspace so they can set up this like, it's like a holding pattern where each guy's at one end of the opposite end of the pattern at, at the time. So everybody's, one guy's always looking at the target. Um, so, cause you got to visually identify, make sure you got the right guy. Um, and the, the problem I think they have finding this guy is there's, you know, it's, it's not that early in the morning, it's early enough, but there's other airplanes out there and it's hard to, you know, decipher who's who, and they're not really sure, you know, what's going on. Uh, they're trying to get their, uh, their stuff together about who's out there, who's not out there, where they're really going. And they have issues with the terrain and everything because it's not flat out there at all. It's pretty hilly out there. So, um, and uh, one of the other things is only one guy in each airplane. Um, having run a SAR mission for real when I was stationed in Germany in the OV-10, uh, there was three of us, three airplanes, trying to help this uh, 104 guy who jumped out in southern Germany. And, uh, I mean, it, it just it gets out of hand. There's so many people on the radio talking to you at the same time. Because what's going, Rock 4-1 is probably, and 4-2 are probably talking to each other on a discrete frequency. And at, at times, she's talking over them. And you can actually hear that where she's probably talking to them and actually blanking out. Like, he's telling his wingman to push at one point, And she goes, yes, I want you to go to that frequency. At the same time, he's telling the other guy to push. So, uh, there's it. you're stepping on each other a lot. It's pretty confusing sometimes. Uh, no matter how often you train for these things, when it actually happens... I remember the young lieutenant who was the first guy on the scene when this F-104 crashed, he just finally comes up on guard. And he, he just starts screaming on the radio, everybody shut the F up, I'm overhead. And, you know, because they were even ground stations trying to run the search and rescue. It gets, everybody wants to get involved. So uh, it gets pretty busy. Plus, you know, you got this. Q400, who's what, doing maybe 150, 180 knots, maybe 200 knots? Well, the F-15s are probably cruising around at 300. <laughs> yeah. So they're not going slow, especially when they first get there. They're going real fast if they're yeah. super. 
So they're doing so, like 10 miles a minute. <laughs> so uh, Jeff, at one point they said, uh, I want my wingman to be at 6,000 feet. Is that like some kind of a standard thing where we have yeah. one of the guys high to kind of look down and kind yeah. of, you know, see the big picture clearing and yeah. watching his, the other guy making sure, cause you know, one guy's probably, he's, he's like padlocked on this slow target, making sure that his buddy doesn't fly into something yet. He's safe too. Looking out for traffic, clearing the airspace for other airplanes. Cause you don't know how, I'm not sure what kind of airspace they were in class Bravo or, you know, uncontrolled airspace or what out there. Uh, but there could have been light air airplanes out there. It could have been, you know, gliders or, you know, ultralights and that kind of stuff. And you're just trying to keep everybody safe at the same time. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, one of the things, you know, you're talking about, well, did the F-15 shoot them down? And we know that they didn't. But I can pretty much tell you, pretty sure if that guy started going over towards Seattle or down to Portland or over populated areas, uh, they probably would have taken him out. They would not have let him hurt anybody else. Would they have the uh, authority to do that on their own, or would they have to get clearance uh, from some other agency to do I would that? Have, or? I'm pretty sure they'd probably have to get clearance from somebody. Uh, I'm sure there's somebody, some general at NORAD is listening to this whole conversation via data link or satellite or something, watching this whole thing, especially if it's an active scramble. I mean, there's a lot of people got woken up that morning <laughs> to be on the to uh, watch it and they'd have been they'd have had to ask permission especially if he'd started moving they'd have, they'd have gone ugly early and started you know hey can we take this guy out and you know and i'm sure neither one of them really wanted to do that but you do what you have to do i'm wondering at what point uh these uh rock 401 and rock 42 supersonic heading up to seattle uh at what point did they understand that this was not a terrorist threat but more a person uh that was just taking the airplane for a joyride you know, from listening to the comm, um, I don't know how much of the VHF traffic they heard. Um, the controller tries to give them some information. And so I'm thinking that after a couple minutes, they probably know that this guy is not, he's a threat no matter what, because it, he's obviously somewhat unstable. Uh, he's stolen an airplane. Uh, he obviously knows somewhat of how to fly it. And um, so, but they're they're probably still they're leaning forward thinking that yeah I'm going to do what I have to do to protect my country. Yeah. So. Um, Ken, uh, in his role as a AWACS and J Star driver, but I guess in in this case AWACS would probably more be more appropriate because when Jeff's talking about all the all the radio transmission chatter, I'm sure you're remembering all the times that you were involved in yeah uh, that familiar. kind of thing. Yeah, and I was just thinking about uh, one other aspect is the low-level uh, altitude, that that would be particularly nerve-wracking intercepting aircraft flying only a 1,000 feet, trying to keep him and the speed differential and birds and, you know, varying terrain, unfamiliar terrain is pretty difficult to all manage in this kind of environment. And how, uh, being the pilot of uh, an AWACS aircraft, uh, how much of this are you actually involved in? Are you just basically flying the platform and everybody in the back is doing all the... Yeah, if we were happen to be in the area, they would probably task us to go over there. But as the pilot, you're you're not required to be involved other than talking to ATC. But you do have the ability to have the radios tuned up to hear the controllers. Okay, so you can hear if you Yeah, we, we can hear any of the radios there talking on in the okay. back, yeah. Because you know me, I would want to have that turned up and see what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah. If there's an active, uh, 
target prosecution or however you want to put it, uh, yeah, any good pilot would want to be aware of the situation. Right. Yeah. Good point. Any good pilot would want to be. Colonel Jeff, have you had a lot of... I've ridden in the AWACS when I was stationed, oh. when I was over... I was in Saudi Arabia during the Iran-Iraq war. That's how old I am. And uh, I got a ride and I was in the back of the AWACS watching the war. And, uh, you know, it's busy back there. There's a lot of radios going on. There's a lot of different people talking on different frequencies. Uh, I was up in the cockpit for a while and they're listening to some of it, but it's a lot of stuff going on. Um, the guys up front are trying to, you know, cause I guess there's times when you guys turn that it masks the, uh, the radar at certain points, not very long, just, just seconds, but the, uh, so there's a lot of manage that. Yeah. There's a lot of management going on in the front and the pointy end where the where he was sitting versus, you know, what the goats are doing in the back. And uh <laughs> I've oh, heard wow. that term in a while. <laughs> I and I and I knew you'd laugh when I heard it because that's I remember those guys. Yeah, we got the goats in the back. <laughs> now, if you're listening to this and you happen to be one of those very professional people that rode in the back of an AWAX, there's no offense. Uh oh, a know. very good friend of mine was one of the controllers back there, and she was awesome. Her husband was one of the pilots. Um, but that was way too many years ago. Um, but you know, so, um, and there's a, I forget what it is. It's a mission specialist back there. Who's running the whole show. The, yeah, MCC. MCC. That's thanks. That's the term I couldn't remember. And so he's, he's probably, you know, and it's a similar, the guy at NORAD's a similar title, but he's just not, he's just on the ground and there, I'm sure they're watching it with their defense radars. So. So our main man, Micah, in the uh, chat room, uh, by the way, just a reminder that we do these shows every week and we do them live. And uh, if you should follow us, uh, APG, APG Crew and our Facebook page, and then uh, you'll get a notification that we're doing the show live. And there's a lot of great stuff. Uh, be part of the uh, the chat room. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. He mentions that the F-15s did uh, tanker or get a get some fuel from a KC-135. Uh, but at the same time, in, in more of the audio from the second piece of audio I, I, I uh, was playing, if you continue to listen to the rest of it, and we'll put the whole thing in the show notes so you can listen to the whole thing. Toward the end there, uh, they say that there are a couple of 767 heavies yeah, over I the uh, Seattle VO Vortac. And, and uh, they, I think somebody on the frequency says, oh, cool. you know, And then... And, they, and then the controller says to the F-15 guys, hey, they say that they're Boeing tankers and they have the capability of refueling you. Well, this tanker, obviously a Boeing tanker, is that new C-46? KC-46. And they were up there. They're listening to all this going on. They're thinking, these guys need some help. We can give them gas. But I think that the F-15 guys were a little bit reluctant to well, uh, do that because they hadn't been – they've never – actually used an F-15 for refueling on the KC-46, as far as I know. I think they yeah. have tanked. Oh, they have. But okay. you're not going to go up there and refuel off of an airplane that you are, quote, not certified on. Okay. Um, and there's, I mean, you have to get every tanker. The first time I saw 135, I had to have you know somebody else who had done it before. First time I saw KC-10, I had to have somebody else who did it before. Uh, you're just not going to go up and refuel on a airplane you've never seen before especially when you have one a regular tanker on the way yeah they uh, had launched one from fairchild i guess and it was on the way down you know quickly to uh get yeah. to these uh these i was actually uh, surprised how long that took 
Yeah. I would have thought that tanker would have been airborne sooner than that. So, so Jeff, uh, if it got to the point, you're up there in one of these F-15Cs, and now you're looking at your fuel, and it's getting darn low. I mean, oh, I'm going. There's got to be gonna a go, point. I'm going to go gonna up be, and grab that boom. Okay, thank yeah. you. That's what I was. I, I was thinking. I would do that <laughs> over the Atlantic. Yeah, I'm going to go up there and grab that boom. Okay, because I did before. <laughs> yeah, except it was an airplane I was familiar with. Yeah. So. Uh, so, uh, wow, what an, an amazing story. What a, a uh, just incident. Just a couple other things, that, Jeff, I want to add. Yeah, uh, sure. I was, I was taking notes. At one point, you actually hear his terrain warning go off. It's in the background. Yep. Yeah, I heard that. And I also heard pull up, pull up at one point yeah. as well. And then a nut, some other kind of warning uh, as well. Uh, I'm not sure what that warning was. It was just some, some kind of a, a, a bell or a, or, yeah. or a beeping noise. Some kind of tone. Yeah, some tone. There was uh, the HDG that the guy's talking about is the heading select knob I'm yeah i'm thinking to myself i think that uh, he's not even on the autopilot i'm not sure exactly what the no. setting the, no, set, at the that setting. point i think they were on like different subjects he he just wants to have fun with this airplane but you can tell that uh he's got a an objective in mind at least i thought i could tell he had an objective in mind which was going to end tragically but in the meantime he didn't want to be distracted by messing about putting autopilots in he was gonna enjoy the last few minutes of his life um but i think he was determined that this was going to end the way it ended uh in fact uh, when he recovered from that barrel roll it might have even been a loop one of those maneuvers and he came very close to the water he actually said he thought he was it was going to happen then um, so I went, yeah, he, he's doing this and he, he's not really expecting to survive yep. this. Trip. Yeah. He said a couple of times that he was expecting this to be the end of it in in different phrasings, but yep. nah, he was, and, know. and I mean, he even went so far as saying he thought he'd have longer to screw around. He was surprised how fast the fuel was going, but he was yep. still expecting it to end that way. And you know, when you talked about it at the very beginning of his audio talking about, you know, throwing up in his microphone and, and then and that he was feeling a little bit of uh, lightheadedness and dizzy. And he, he thought that it had something to do with the pressurization, but that could not have had anything to do with pressurization because no, he's never above, you know, a couple yeah. thousand feet. So I'm thinking, I know what it was. Look at the menu. Look at the video. Right. <laughs> look at what he's doing with that airplane. He's disoriented. So, yeah. Well, he's like pulling G's and he's doing it. Uh, at one point. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, so I'm thinking that's what it was when he got he got sick and lightheaded is because he's pulling G forces. And most people don't understand what that does to your body physiologically until you actually experience it. The other thing that I thought was kind of odd was at one point, most of the his audio was pretty calm, collected, almost. It was funny. I was sitting here listening to it laughing because he's funny. Yeah. He's a funny guy. And apparently in, in his personal life, he was funny to his wife and, and other people and his family and friends. That was the way he was known. But uh, at one point, he, he sounded angry, and he was yelling at – I think he said something about Andrew and mm -hmm. and damn you, Andrew. And what was that? I couldn't tell if he was quoting something or he was – It was. I think it was Andrew, keep it together or something like that, wasn't is it? Is that a quote from some movie? I, I can't – I don't know. I mean, that yeah. the, the keep it together part sounds like it is, but I couldn't place it. Yeah. Anybody have any idea? That just – it seemed so – different than everything else we heard from him just like keep a little moment keep it together isn't that from pushing tin is andrew the character's name it, you're right uh, i think that is a, lane, ooh, a line remember. from that movie wow interesting wow 
This was a very troubled person as he yeah. had, actually he he understood that he mm-hmm. it was interesting that whatever his psychosis is, he understands that he is not uh, he has some screws loose. He's a broken man. And uh, and obviously and I agree with uh, Captain Nick. He he set out to do this. He had yeah. no intention of landing this airplane. He was yeah. going to go and make it. This is yeah. going to be his glory. Just song. the calm, the way he addressed that topic, kind of indicated that it was already decided. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I mean, know it, it was it was glory seeking, Jeff, because I think he was doing this for himself. He was yeah. enjoying the, the last you know few moments of it, the exhilaration of what he was doing. I don't think he was looking for fame he was enjoying chatting to the guys um he said and he i think he was just you know in his own little world uh, having the last few moments of fun um and i but you i think you're absolutely right the, the poor guy was probably suffering from a, a severe form of mental illness anyone who wants to take their own life has got to be in a pretty bad state, but he seemed incredibly good at camouflaging it because even when you listen to him on the radio, he doesn't sound like a guy who's about to take his life. He sounds like like a guy who's out on a motorcycle, enjoying the freedom of being out on the road yeah. and having a good time. But like Dana. Deep, deep there beneath. <laughs> oh, no. Exactly. Should we worry about Dana? Where's Dana? Just like Dana. Deep underneath, I think, is is something really dark and difficult for him. But he doesn't want to get other people unhappy and concerned because he says, I don't want to screw your day up. Um, he, he is, um, you can tell it's there, but he is think, still thinking about other people and how they're reacting to what he's doing. I, it's, it's not, it, I find it an extremely disturbing Um period listening to that i you know i really makes me feel really quite uncomfortable um listening to it all because i I do it with the attitude of this guy is about to take his life what are that before he got to the point where he wanted to steal that aircraft yeah i mean i don't know everybody else's experience here i but i i know and have known previously people with fairly substantial mental illnesses and one of the things that i really guess I wasn't aware of until I knew some people like that is that they at least most of them that I've dealt with are very aware of their their issues and their illnesses but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can control it any better and you know it's that's in fact in some cases I think it may make it a lot harder they're not they they don't have this sort of blissful ignorance they know that they have a problem but that that problem sometimes they can manage it and sometimes they can't Um, you know if the brain works a certain way you may be aware that it's doing it in a disconnected sense or ahead of, or after the fact, but you may not be in real time. And this guy sounded to me like someone who knew he had an issue, but he'd made a decision. He was going out to have a thrill that he thought he would never have in his life. And he decided to make the most of it. You know, the other thing that struck me about it was I'm, I'm guessing I'm closer to this than most of the people um, on the actual chat right now or on the actual podcast. But I'm thinking back to the first couple of flying lessons I did where basic maneuvering in the pattern around an aircraft made me, you know, motion sick. And, you know, this guy, I mean, I think we agreed that he's probably done some time in a sim and he's done some of that stuff. So maybe he had prepared in some sense for what do I need in hand to be able to pull off this maneuver that I want to do. But the sensation of doing it in an actual aircraft and Jeff, you mentioned pulling G's and that kind of stuff. I, I can't imagine he would possibly have come through that without some adverse effects. I mean, I've never pulled G's in an aircraft, but frankly, I'm surprised he didn't pass out. Well, uh, 
the typical person has about a four and a half G resting G tolerance where they can just sitting there handle about four, four and a half Gs. Uh, to give you an idea of what that is, uh, most roller coasters or entertainment rides, carnival rides, can only get up to about two, maybe two and a half on the really extreme ones. So you're talking double that. Um, watching the video, I was actually kind of surprised he didn't rip the wings off. Um, yeah, I thought for it sure. It looked but, like he had to be right he, at the limit. If he yeah, had I mean, actually landed that, that airplane. four hundred. I mean, it, I mean. <laughs> that, that airplane was totaled. Um, even if he managed to land that thing yeah. on the ground, I don't think they'd ever be able to fly that thing again. So, uh, but yeah, he's he's a little disoriented. He's a little surprised by the feel, the sensations in his body. You know, rolling an airplane around, having given enough incentive rides to people. Um, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot <laughs> sometimes. Don't you agree with me, though, looking at those at the videos that, heck, this guy has natural talent. What a what a waste. of. Well, that's life. why I say I think he's probably had done, you know, not he hadn't played around in video games a little bit. He'd done hundreds of hours in a simulator. Yeah, he had to have. I mean, a home simulator, not one he could log, I'm sure. But he'd done hundreds of hours of flying in something in that that format. Yeah, that barrel looked well coordinated, and the pullout was just so smooth. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came close to the water, but he didn't panic as the water came up. He didn't over rotate the airplane. I, he just looked, yeah, like he was a, a natural. And I believe that comment was made by more than one person who was watching, including the F fifteen drivers. I mean, I've seen a lot of demonstration flights, and it looked as smooth as most of the demonstration flights I've seen at these big air shows. And I really did think, I go, this has got to be a guy who's got some background flying an airplane. I I, I thought more than just to simmer right. watching the video. I was kind of, kind of surprised at how well he actually did based on what the background we know is. Yeah. A very, very sad story. And I'm sure we're going to oh, learn yeah. more about it. It was uh, painful even to listen to. <laughs> Uh, we have some other links in our in our show notes that you'll be able to see um, his relationship with his wife and his family, his uh, their their blog site, uh, a video that he compiled, um, a, a very uh, a complex man and a very troubled man, and that you'll see when you when you watch all of this. And it's just a shame that uh, there wasn't some way for him to get the help that he needed to keep something like this from happening. Um, but the good news is that. You know, he only killed himself and not anybody else, I guess. That's the. Yeah, I guess with with a machine like that, you have the potential to hurt a lot of people. So I guess if there is a a good part of it, that would be it. But even so, I'm quite disturbed by the whole thing. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it seemed quite clear that he definitely wanted to avoid hurting anybody else. He, he, I mean, he may said that a number of times. He was out to have fun, but. You know, I, it may not have been the whole reason, but even a couple of times when they were asking him to land, he was avoiding it because he didn't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. Although there, there was, there are certain points where he seemed to be kind of concerned about his own well-being, mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't want to land at McCord because they're going to rough me up. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think as, as well, a number of us have said at this point, it sounded like he had decided to end things and he wanted to make sure that he didn't hurt anybody else in the process, but he also probably didn't want to get beat up instead. Right. So just killing himself and impacting at a high rate. I think he was seeing it as an easy way, well, easier way out, a quick way out rather than, well, he also made allusion to life in prison. I think, you know, he, he was probably looking at it as land, get beat up and then go to prison. And that was not what he'd set out to do. Right. Wow. All right. Uh, fascinating. Thank you so much, uh, Colonel Jeff and, and Captain Nick, for your 
reflections on this and your uh, experience with uh, intercepts and that kind of thing. That's uh, that's valuable, priceless information to uh, that get your perspective. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy to be here. All right. Well, we're going to get your perspective on some other things as well. That's not going to be the Uh-oh. entire show. I knew it was going to be a big part of the show. Um, it was. Anything else to say before we move on to the next news item? All right. Uh, the next thing in the news bag, Jet Airways Boeing 777-300 at London on August 30th of last year. Oh. Um, there was an unsafe departure. Okay, apparently a Jet Airways Boeing 777-300 was performing flight 117 from London Heathrow to Mumbai, India, with 231 passengers, 15 crew. They lined up on Heathrow's runway 27 left at taxiway Sierra 4 Echo, about 1,200 meters, 4,000 feet down the runway. Uh, so, uh, it was a shortened runway intersection. The aircraft departed, climbed through 1000 feet MSL, about, uh, 3,200 meters, 1.7 nautical miles past the runway end and continued the flight to Mumbai for a safe landing about eight hours and 10 minutes later. However, here's the problem. Local residents complained to police about a low flying aircraft that had barely cleared the aerodrome perimeter fence. Police contacted air traffic control at Heathrow, who identified the aircraft and modified, excuse me, notified United Kingdom's AAIB Air Accidents Investigation Branch. The AAIB opened an investigation into the occurrence and informed India's Directorate General of Civil Aviation, uh, who suspended both the captain and first officer of the flight pending the investigation. The airline reported that there had been no injuries and no damage. The airline, however, investigates the occurrence as part of their active safety management too. Uh, let's see. So the aircraft performed an inter- intersection departure, thus not using the full runway length. However, did not climb to the required height in time and crossed the airport perimeter wall and traffic on the road just past the wall at a very low height. The AAIB released their final report on uh, August 10th of this year, stating that the aircraft had crossed the airport boundary at 13 feet above ground level and an adjacent road at 30 feet above ground level. It says, according to the airport's noise monitoring systems, and I'm not sure how a noise monitoring system could accurately tell that an airplane was at 30 feet other than unless the mast on which the microphones were poised we're oh taking God, down <laughs> there may be 30 feet tall or something. I don't know. I don't know. You'd, you'd be surprised how well you can extrapolate distances. Yeah, if you have, I guess so. The reference points for volume. I think it Completing. was, the guy, I think it was the guy who was spinning the wheels when he reached up on the top <laughs> yeah. of the double decker bus, he reached up and touched the wheels. So the, <laughs> the AAIB concluded the probable cause of the uh, incident was a wrong selection of the aircraft takeoff performance by the commander despite the co-pilot selecting the right takeoff performance initially, but the commander overruled her takeoff performance selection. So, and then they have some other data here about what happened and other measurements and, and, you know, what they uh, found from the flight data recorder, as far as how low they were to the ground. And that basically it confirms essentially within a few feet of what uh, the initial report had uh, mentioned about 13 or 16 feet above the, uh, the fence at the uh, airport perimeter. And uh, so, and they go into a little bit detail about how they entered the wrong data, et cetera. But um, wow. What, so what do you think about this, Nick? You fly 
Um, what was this again? Was it a? Um, it's a oh, it was a triple seven. So you don't, you're not a Boeing pilot. You, <laughs> know, <laughs> you only hope. You only hope to be. Yeah, it's his dream. But it's still a big <laughs> I hope not to be, and I think I'm going to succeed in that wish. <laughs> so, before we get into the Boeing Airbus thing, uh, this is something that we've seen happen on Airbuses as well. It's that 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 step, that cr- that critical step of entering the proper data in your in your uh, flight management computer and making sure that you're using the proper power settings for. Uh, takeoff. Remember, and again, unfortunately, it was another Boeing uh, out of Miami International. Um, was it last year or the year before that? Year before. Uh, the year before that took off from a Sierra One intersection, not the full length, and they took out some ILS or maybe some um, runway lighting or some kind of uh, antenna. Oh, we took out the ILS. The ILS antenna and uh, seventeen-inch gash, and the and then they continued all the way to uh, uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, but um, yeah, so I mean, it's not something new, and uh, and sadly, we're probably going to hear more incidents about this kind of thing. But what's your take on this, Nick? Well, uh, I'm I'm not familiar with that turn on because we're to the north side of that runway. Now, these guys were coming out of Terminal Four, um, but it's the equivalent of the November Four Echo turn off for me. Um, the one thing I don't have familiarity is with the software they're using, I presumably on uh, their electronic flight bag to calculate their performance. Now, it looks like the first officer wanted to select um, tax, the entry point of Sierra 4, which would be correct, uh, because that's the taxiway they're taxing on. Now, what this first four is that the captain selected I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, now, I don't know what software they, software they have, whether it's a Boeing product or a, um, a third-party product, but it's, I'm I think completely it, bemused by it. It's an Airbus one. product, I think. No. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's what I use. And uh, we can only enter the, um, the legal um, intersections that are on there. You can't select something weird like you know, uh, something, a misnamed interception. So someone's going to have to help me there and explain to me what first four is as opposed to Sierra four. Now, uh, Jeff, uh, I have a feeling that uh, your company, Ajax, is like Ken and my company, Acme, where we don't enter our own takeoff performance data ourselves. We get data. Well, I guess maybe we could make the same kind of mistake because we get data printed out for VR, our ACAR system. And then we select the proper power setting based on the data that we see there. But we don't actually in the mad dog enter any data into the FMS per se, except our takeoff speeds that are calculated by uh, a separate department at our company. Um, so we're not on our own making these kind of performance data decisions. How about you at, at, uh, we, Ajax? Uh, on the seven, three, it's kind of nice cause it actually downloads via data link. Um, you but get it's, a print- it's performance yeah, that's computed by somebody else, right? Yeah. It's the load department does it. And, uh, what I get it with the flight plan with the paperwork, I get a, what we call a TPS take us performance sheet and it's got five runways on it and it has intersections listed if we can take off from that runway intersection. So we just select the proper intersection. Uh, For example, we always take off uh, in Dallas um, 
full length, but there's three approaches to full length. And the, the, the third one is the furthest one from the approach end, and it's a couple hundred feet. So we always select that as an intersection just for safety reasons. Uh, like three one left at, at JFK. Nick, you, I don't know if you've ever taken off from that one. You probably use full length. Yeah, yeah, many times. But Jeff, you oh, may yeah, be familiar we, with that. Well, Kilo- we, we go from Juliet. They've had work in progress. We've gone from yeah. Juliet. Kilo Echo is a lot further up. But Kilo so, Echo is what we use a lot. So if you know if we're taxiing out, thinking we're going to take off from the intersection, we go full length. We can just stay with the intersection data because it's, it's going to be as it, it, it's, it's going to be good enough or better yeah. performance. Than- so for me to select the wrong intersection is not really going to happen because it gets double checked like three times in our checklist. Uh, and I don't know how you two do it. And I'm sure you probably do something similar. And I encourage my first officers to argue with me. I mean, one of the first things I tell them is if you, th- if you think I know something, you're wrong. Tell me anyway. And then, and then we'll talk about it. So I think this first officer, and I think part of it's cultural is he just rolls over. She, and, she just rolls over. Yeah, that thing makes it even well, worse. I think the captain rolls over her, to be fair. Yeah, I that's, yeah. He disregards her because she's put the right performance in. So that might be a cultural thing there. That's why I kind of put a little emphasis on her because this is uh, an Indian airline and, and the culture over there is, is quite different than, I think, uh, from the culture in the UK and the United States. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that might be. It goes back be- to the Asiana incident in San Francisco. And yeah, yeah. the you know you you it's kind of the same situation. You don't want to embarrass the other person, and yeah. you know. I think I've answered my own question here. It appears that um, first four on the OTP uh, on their performance would be the um, fourth in first four intersections. Uh, the default output was used, which was. From departure from November 1, which is full length. November 1 is right at the beginning of the runway. Uh, and so it looks like the captain selected the performance for full length. Uh, the first officer had put interse- the, in, the intersection performance in. Um, why he overrode her, I do not know. I mean, I that- was wondering. On that basis, I was wondering if first four referred to full length and then Sierra 1, 2, and 3, meaning the first four possible takeoff points. And perhaps he looked at that and said, first four includes number four. Yeah. In which case he doesn't understand his own software. Well, yeah. agreed. But it, it, yeah. I wondered if that yeah. was maybe how that mistake got made. Could be part of the computer. I mean, you, you'd hope the captain would go the safer route and, and take the full length. Just but- to use a, a higher power setting. And what harm could that be? You know? Yep. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they had the performance to use the intersection and why they didn't take full length when they were reasonably heavy, I don't know. But uh, having just done the simulator and we uh, were commended because uh, we did the correct procedure because, you know, you do an independent performance calculation and then you hold your screens up to the other guy and you check every figure to make sure that you've both done the same calculation. And if there's any difference, you query it. And if you, if necessary, you just take the the most limiting one. You yep. take the safest one. Uh, why on earth he thought that his calculation were always, was always going to be correct and uh, overrate her, I think just is, is bad captaincy. So yeah. maybe I missed it, but was the CVR pulled, the data? Or the conversation in the cockpit? Um, I, 
I'm not sure, but uh, I know that they used the flight data recorder data. Um, yeah, I'd yeah. just like to hear the interaction between the, the crew members on how it was finally resolved. Yeah. It, it depends on how long the CVR lasts. Yeah, exactly. Say, hours later, they may have lost it. Right, yeah. right. As a way to recover yeah. that stuff, but it's not... I'm it gets continually it. looped, yeah. yeah. Mm. Although the new ones are digital. As far as, as, far as uh, your conduct as a captain in the um, 737 Jeff for me it's I'm the king I make that known that I'm the dictator and if somebody's <laughs> going to say something that conflicts with what I think then they should just shut up or else they're going to get off the trip Ken what do you have to say away. to that I plead the fifth <laughs> I'm still on the trip <laughs> so of course I'm saying that tongue in cheek that's not the way we do things anymore now when I started flying at Acme Airlines 30 years ago the, there were some guys like that and uh, that was a very unsafe Nick will thing. remember the days in the early on in his fighter career was two mayday bingo leads you on fire and that's all a wingman guy ever got to say oh yeah for <laughs> yeah sure. and that's yeah. all you ever said as a, as a young lieutenant two no. mayday bingo lead you on fire <laughs> yep i mean you for the first two or the first three years you just kept your mouth shut yep. and mm -hmm. soaked it up like a sponge and quite honestly that was probably the safest way to do things ah <laughs> <sighs> oh, wow okay well fortunately in this case they didn't crash the airplane, but it uh, it could have gone that way. So. Oh, they got away with it, but barely. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of getting away with it, and just barely, <laughs> uh, we have an incident where uh, a gentleman is uh, traveling in Berlin. On a later and, note. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, um, he has a gift for his girlfriend, apparently, um, in his bag. And uh, apparently the uh, security folks thought that this... Uh, this adult um, entertainment um, yeah, well uh, device uh, was um, not that, but a a grenade. So they incorrectly identified this object and basically shut down the whole airport for some time. Well, it could be a grenade, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> it may have been. I don't know what the brand name of the, the device was. It's possible. It's in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, is it yeah. the name of the thing? Just, you just scrolled past it. Okay, it's uh, Ann Summers is and apparently I'm, I'm the uh, Google it now. the retailer. Which I should definitely not uh, do. <laughs> and uh, it was a some kind of a, a vibrator. Oh, that's one of those things you use for your neck <laughs> muscles, various muscles of your body to kind of give relief, apparently. And uh, yeah, so um, uh, they, uh, they they kind of overreacted a bit, uh, th thinking that this is some kind of a dangerous device. And I guess in the wrong hands, it could be. Um, but then, boom, that's what... Hmm. That's what she said. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, about three... Only There wasn't a big disruption. Only 300 flights canceled <laughs> at Munich's airport after... Oh, wait, no, that was a different thing. That was a different... Um, uh, so, never mind. I don't know how yeah. <laughs> big of a disruption this thing was. But uh, apparently... Um, I, and I'm not really sure what the solution to this is. Uh, I don't have any advice uh, for you if you're trying to transport this kind of... Put it device. in your checked baggage. I think it was in checked baggage, wasn't it? Oh. Or maybe not. Maybe this was through the regular security line. Maybe it was uh, It was uh, oh, identified during an x-ray at the outsized baggage check-in oh, area. So oh, it was checked yeah. baggage. Yeah, it sounds like it was checked. Yeah. So, you know, he, he did the right honest, thing. That situation might actually have been easier to resolve if it hadn't been. If it didn't yeah. carry on and he would have maybe been very embarrassed, but able right. to explain. 
So he's actually kind of smart thinking, well, I'm not going to put this thing right. in my carry on. I'm going to put it in check baggage and there's not going to be a problem. Apparently there was now, a problem. The interesting thing I find about this story is, uh, this has made the news. So <laughs> <Right>. I, have, <laughs> I have no doubt that the person who was carrying this, um, device wouldn't have told anybody. So how the hell did the papers find out about it? I don't know. That's a good point, Nick. Not sure. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and I'm not really sure why so we're actually talking about it in our show, but <laughs> yeah, a little discretion, please. Security agents. <laughs> yeah. Come on guys. No, not going to happen. Uh, no. It's funny. I've actually seen something like this. What? Oh, really? Where yeah. have you been? You've uh, been to this. And, and so no, I was, when I went, I told you I was in Saudi Arabia during the Iran-Iraq war, and I flew down there on Saudia. And I'm going through Saudi Arabian customs with all these German contractors who have obviously been this done down this road several times. And the, the routine is you, you're on this huge, long aluminum table, and the, the inspectors are on one side with just piles of trash of, of stuff they've confiscated behind them. And you open your suitcase for them. The guy next to me does not open his suitcase. And about the time I recognize that I'm in trouble is when all the Germans are huddled around behind me and the guard throws open the suitcase and it is a setup. This suitcase is full of the most unbelievable porn I've ever seen in my life. It was classic. <laughs> this poor Saudi guard throws himself on top of the suitcase. He jumps off the floor and he's covering, trying to tear the stuff up underneath him, screaming the whole time. And the Germans are going down like bowling pins. <laughs> and I, I don't know I'm thinking is great. I'm next. <laughs> so yeah, they were having fun. Wow. But yeah, I've I've actually seen this happen at the TSA where you know you see these things come out of a bag, you know, and the guy's kind of holding them up. <laughs> yeah, we've heard incident. We've actually talked about it on our show where you know somebody. Paul, I think was it at Jacksonville, Florida, a couple of years ago, where somebody had it in their checked baggage, and apparently it had been jostled enough that the thing was actually mm -hmm. vibrating. Oh, going off! Oh, great! Yeah, and they pulled it out of the bag, and the people in the airplane could see the the ramp people like with this thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a big mess. Big mess. Anyway, that's probably enough of that on uh, our show. Yeah, it's uh. uh Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. <laughs> so, um, and the last thing we have in our news folder, uh, I think I'm going to skip it. It was just a, it was a, an airplane, a Cessna 172 that crashed in uh, Northern California, and not really a lot of information about exactly what happened there. So, Jeff, I was uh, surprised there was actually a video of this guy landing from somebody's dash cam. Oh, so I didn't see that video. I, I tried I, to find. I didn't oh. realize it was the one in the in the news until I saw it. Uh, I saw it yesterday and just figured it would be in the notes. But uh, yeah, he comes over the top of this guy's car at about 50 feet and he just lands on the highway between vehicles. Well, I guess we're going to talk about this then. This is a <laughs> small plane makes an emergency landing on Interstate 580 in San Leandro, California. One person suffered minor injuries this evening when a small plane landed in the westbound lanes on Interstate 580 near 164th Street in the Ashland neighborhood of unincorporated was, Alameda County. Was that County. the famous straight bit that they have every few miles where there are no overhead you cables? You know, we've already debunked that, Nick. Please, please, <laughs> yeah. please. Let's don't start that one. The Eisenhower <laughs> interstate system and the yeah. landing runway, it's all not true. Yeah. But, uh, Back to 48% then. Yeah, I know. Thank you. 
so anyway, we have that. We'll put the link in the show notes and you can look for the video yourself. And, uh, uh, yeah, the only videos that I saw, Jeff, were like yeah, the airplane one. was just sitting there parked. I'm thinking, well, that's not exciting. What's, <laughs> yeah. what's a, yeah. You know, we like titillation on this show. And, and I don't mean that in a sexual way. <laughs> that was the last story. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. exactly. All right. Well, with that, that's the end of our news folder and our news items for this show. And that means it's time for the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. First item, Deanna. She's a new listener. And she said, hi, Woo. I just discovered your, yeah, yay, woohoo, yeah. Uh, discovered your podcast this month, and I've already listened to several. Thank you for making such great content. I have a couple of questions. Oh, my. She must be a little bit slightly deranged, perhaps. I don't know. Um, number one, could you talk about the movie Airplane on the show? I've heard air crews generally like it, and I caught your reference to it when you ask for coffee funds. It's one of my all-time favorites, and I wonder what your favorite scenes quotes are, and if you have any colleagues who absolutely hate it. My favorite lines are, we have clearance, Clarence, and Roger, Roger, what's our vector, vector? So to answer that first part, before I, she's new, she hasn't heard the uh, the previous theme song that we used to use on this show. So I meant to have this all queued up and I don't. So I'm going to, Oh, you got to play it. Yeah. So here is the theme for the airline pilot guys show, uh, prior to a few months back and I'm still trying to find it, but that's okay. When I do the audio, this will be all cut out. For sure. These people need to go to a hospital. What is it? It's a big place where sick people go. <laughs> Let's I see. I think the bandana yeah. stop sniffing glue. <laughs> Joey, have you ever been in a Turkish prison? <laughs> oh, that's one of the best ones. Like that. Yes. Or I, grown uh, men I agree. Yeah. Do you like to? Have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> I am I serious. Speak. Don't call me Shirley. I speak guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost every it's, line is a quotable. It's a fantastic memorable film. line. I think. Uh, like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> this was the original airline pilot guy theme. Okay, so you can kind of hear that a little bit faintly in the background there. But uh, as uh, Nick and Jeff were doing, uh, I have a whole, looking at my soundboard here, uh, let's see, let's play a few um, selections. I know, but this guy doing the flying has no airline experience at all. He's a menace to himself and everything else in the air. Yes, birds too. Elaine, you're a member of this crew. Can you face some unpleasant facts? No. <laughs> <laughs> Flying a plane is no different than riding a bicycle. Just a lot harder to put baseball cards in the spokes. Now, I think you have to be kind of old to understand <laughs> yeah. that reference. Yeah. But Jeff and I, and Jeff maybe and I, Nick, yeah, we know. Yeah, we I'm, put I don't baseball cards in England. I did too. Did you too? <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, you can actually put uh, like with a clothespin. Clothespins is what you yeah, use. Yeah, and, and baseball yeah. card and uh, or a or a, a playing card is what I use. Mm-hmm. And you put it in the spokes, and it made a. It almost sounded like your your bike had an engine. That was cool. Ted, that was probably the lousiest landing in the history of this airport. Columbus. There's some of us here. <laughs> Shut up, Billy. Me. Like to buy you a drink of shit. <laughs> it is a tough crowd. It's tough love, they say. <laughs> it's tough Can something. you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> so what's your favorite though, Jeff? That was the um, <laughs> I really get a chuckle out of uh, when when uh, Jimmy is it Jimmy that comes up to the cockpit? I think it is. Yes. And he starts off with his <laughs> Have you ever, you know, visited a Turkish prison? Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so in, in, in practical everyday experience, a lot of times we'll have somebody as they're boarding the airplane, they have some young kids and they come up to the cockpit and it's just all I have (laughs) to not say, you ever seen a grown man naked? (laughs) So yeah, that's uh, and I don't. I, you know, I'm still employed by my company. Yeah, I don't know. What's your favorite, uh, Ken? You only get to do that once, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> no. Maybe I'll do that uh, on it's my retirement. On your last day. Yeah. Last day. <laughs> Ken, do you have any favorites? Oh, I get a kick out of when uh, when she says, "I speak jive." Oh yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> that was yeah. already brought up, but it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, Robert, <laughs> there are a number of them. Yeah. Uh, some of them not fit for a family show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. I don't know. I, I think the uh, the clearance, Clarence and Vector Victor combination is pretty. That that little chat that occurs is pretty yeah, fantastic. As they're rolling for takeoff. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, what's your favorite? Oh, it's it's got to be because I use it all the time. Don't call me Shirley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a classic. I always got a kick out of when Kareem finally blows his cover and he starts talking about, no, I didn't throw that game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Have your dad running up, up down the court. (laughs) Um, The whole movie, he's, you know, kind of playing over that. And yeah. Oh, so I, uh, I've heard an anecdotal uh, experience kind of thing. And and more than one person has told me this, that when um, Leslie Nielsen was still alive, uh, he would, uh, when he flew, he would actually come up to the cockpit and he'd, op- you know, he'd come through the <laughs> cockpit door opening and say, I just wanted to let you know that we're all counting on, you, you know, that, that famous line and it would just crack everybody up. It's, and, and I know it must be true because it sounds like that he would be the kind of guy yeah. that would do that. Yeah. Uh, just some uh, of the characters, I mean, from Lloyd Bridges, I mean, you know, Jeff, you and I both grew up with him in Sea Hunt. Yep. You know, and to see him in that kind of role just completely destroyed your right. image of him. Exactly. It was and not Mrs. a comedic role in Sea <laughs> <Yeah>. Hunt. <laughs> and then Mrs. Cleaver speaking jive. Yeah. <laughs> From Leave yeah. it to Beaver. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know. I I'm, think if he had ever done it once, it would be famous as he always did it. He only needed to do that to one air crew for the story to last forever. Exactly. Yeah. But I think he did it almost he every time he flew. Did. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Deanna, I think you're getting the idea that we really love the airplane movie at, at the APG. We, uh, that's, uh, it's gotta be our favorite. Absolutely. Movie. Nervous. Yes. Very first time. <laughs> no, I've been nervous lots of times. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What a great movie. I think I have to watch that again soon. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, and then、uh, she says, "Why do airlines use call signs rather than the actual name of the company? It seems the use of the call signs would increase risk of mistakes." Now, first of all, that latter、uh, point, I I don't think it it does anything to do、uh, like increase the risk of mistakes, but and a lot of airlines do use the company name as the call sign. Acme does.、Uh, Uh, Ajax, Ajax does. does.、Um, uh, Southwest does. does. But actually, when you think about it, if you look at the whole list of airlines and call signs, I, I would imagine that most airlines use the actual company name as Air a call France, sign. Air France, Lufthansa, KLM. Yeah. Speed, now, now there's BA some. Doesn't. Yeah, BA used Speedbird.、Um, uh, let's see,、uh, America West used um, uh, Cactus. Cactus.、Um, let's、Redwood. see, Redwood. Redwood. Right. Yeah, so whole- <laughs> blue streak. And- blue streak.、Uh, we've talked、eagle. about that one. What <laughs> doesn't American Eagle uses Eagle? Yeah, yeah. doesn't it go to the, there's, there's only a limited number of characters they used to in the old system that they could input in their call sign in the、uh, flight plan? <sighs> I don't think so. Maybe because、yeah, it's it's just an abbreviation of the flight plan anyway. So yeah, yeah. yeah the- Would be just a three-letter representation. I, well, I honestly think it's the, the the people like in management of the company that come up with oh, this would be a really cool、yeah. call sign to use for our company, and and sometimes they don't think about the implications of the call sign that they're using. And I have a feeling that some of these call signs are are formulated or or made up by people that are not pilots. Because we talked about this, I think, on the last or the previous show about、uh, Blue Streak,、mm-hmm. and because when I think of Blue Streak, I think of the、uh, blue juice on the side of my airplane, and that's <laughs>、yeah. not a very positive thing to think about when you think of Blue Streak.、Uh, the other one,、um, <laughs> and this is a story.、Uh, let's see, was it、uh, Value Jet? Their call sign was Critter, and、uh, then Air Tran, which re- really was. Value Jet、uh, reincarnated.、Uh, their call sign was Citrus. And、oh I'm thinking, yeah. When I'm thinking Citrus, I'm thinking like a lemon, and I'm thinking I don't want to be considered a lemon. <laughs> That's not a positive thing, is it? A complimentary thing. And well, Nick.、Uh, hey, Nick was was B A always Speedbird, or was that、uh, after Concord? No, no, that was be- well before. That was、oh, okay. Maybe they picked that up with、uh, Concord. It was an old call sign that they've hung on to for years. Okay,、hmm. so the classic call sign、uh, that I story I've heard was、uh, out of Randolph Air Force Base. They would have some flights. Randy, Randy, you know, eight <laughs> zero.、Mm-hmm. Well, I heard one time they went to an air show in the UK with that call sign, and it has a little different <laughs> connotation over there. Yeah, if you're if、oh, you're、uh, so, yeah. if you're a little yeah. Randy, <laughs> yeah, 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 has a different connotation. Yeah, I don't know. Any other interesting call signs other than、uh, Speedbird, Cactus, Blue Streak?、Uh, oh, one of the most interesting ones I think is Waterski.、Mm-hmm. Uh, oh a, yeah, a, comp- a company out of St. Louis, I think.、Uh, they used to do a lot when they started flying. They did most of their flights between St. Louis, Missouri, and the Ozarks. And apparently, the owner of the company.、Um, Was like a big water skiing guy. He had something to do with the water skiing industry. I don't know if he manufactured water skis or whatever, and so he decided that's going to be the call sign for my company, Water Ski. I don't know which airline it is, but one of the smaller—it's、uh, a caravan outfit, I think—that flies、uh, both. I think it's both guests and supplies to some of the Bahamas resorts. Goes by Watermaker. 
I've heard that. Flying out of Florida. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> I, think they, I think they fly out of like um, Fort Lauderdale area. Okay, how about this one? Um, you know, back when uh, Yahoo was still significant in the world of uh, computing and internet stuff. I guess they still are, but not like they used to be. You know, there's that Yahoo and they go dot com. Um, they'd have a commercial where they do the dot com thing. Well, I all of a sudden started hearing this this call sign dot com. And I'm thinking, what? Oh, yeah. What the heck is that? And it finally got the best of me. And I did a lot of research trying to figure out who dot com was. And apparently it's like a company that is an independent company that allows business corporate jets to use their they have like a whole dispatching system and flight planning system and i think it may have been a way for the some of these corporations to be more anonymized so that they could fly a flight somewhere and instead of using their their end number uh, which was easily identified with that particular company uh, they could use a, a dot com flight yeah supposedly number. they're a lot harder to track yeah the, uh, flight radar or you know flight aware or anything like that that, that you don't get a lot of information on them but our good old Phil Davis, if you're listening, Phil, uh, kudos sure to you. Is. He's the guy that identified the United 777 on downwind here uh, outside our hotel room. Um, he would have a way to figure it out, but uh, I don't think it's completely, you know, uh, secretive. But uh, it's one way to kind of keep the competition, I guess, from knowing, you know, where your business jets are going. Or you might be making a deal. Right. Lane apparently has the story behind Watermaker oh, really? in the uh, chat that? room. He says the... Um, the name is actually Watermaker Air, which I didn't know, but they uh, apparently they make water filters as well. So, ah, oh, that makes some sense. Um, here's an interesting thing. I think what's well, interesting to me, and it's my show, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, the call sign. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, Jeff, but Frontier Airlines. Have you ever noticed that most of the time, air traffic control? And uh, most of the time that the Frontier pilots are using their call sign, they always say Frontier Flight, Frontier Flight yeah. 433. And I'm thinking, but then the controller never says that. They don't say Acme Flight, blah, 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 uh, TWA Flight. Well, of course, we haven't heard that in a while. But they don't say Flight. The, the only time they use Flight is with Frontier. And they go, why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Until I figured out that their actual real call sign is Frontier Flight. It's not just Frontier. It's Frontier Flight. So that's actually their real call sign. So I thought that was interesting. Well, when we started flying over, um, actually, I can't do this without revealing the actual <laughs> name of my company. Well, you have so a I'm friend that gonna... flies for Virgin Atlantic, right? Oh, that's that was it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying that when he started flying over the heartland of America, they refused to use the proper call sign, which would be like, Virgin 11, they insisted on calling them Virgin Air because I, I don't know whether they had a problem saying the word Virgin, but uh, they tagged an air on the end, calling them Virgin Air. So uh, that was uh, became common. We we didn't even recognize the people when they were using our calls or their call sign. Anyway, uh, by the by, um, Deanna actually says, uh, why do airlines use call signs rather than the actual name? It seems the use of call signs would increase mistakes. Now, I think she's got a point there because when you're on the ground and uh, you're trying to identify an aircraft that uh, has a particular call sign, and it's taxing past you, and you're thinking, well, is that Southwest? Yeah, 
and there's a redwood or something going on, unless you know, and unless you're very familiar, there's no real way to connect often the call sign with the aircraft um, paint scheme. So you're not quite certain which aircraft it is that's talking. So um, I, I personally think if there's some connection that helps us remember that the call, which call signs go with which companies, it would be useful, particularly those of us who don't spend our entire lives coming to the U.S. That is a good point. And, and, and uh, I think that Ken will agree with me that there are sometimes you fly to, let's say, LaGuardia, and there's a company out there that has their aircraft painted exactly like the mainline affiliated carrier. So let's say, let's just choose an airline like Delta, uh, who flies a lot in at LaGuardia. And they, we have our, uh, there, they have their paint scheme. And, uh, whoops. You're and, worse uh, than me. <laughs> I know. It's your fault. Uh, they have their call, their, their, their paint scheme. And then another regional jet comes by and it looks identical to the main line paint scheme. And then, but they're using a completely different call sign. That's true uh, for most regionals though, Jeff. Yeah. And it's yeah. confusing. Sometimes it's, it's confusing. I know. Uh, follow the know, uh, company, blah, blah, blah. And you're going, what company? I don't right. see a company. We don't all have of, all of Americans regionals are painted in American colors. Yeah. And well, I mean, well, it's really confusing because like our regionals are flying 175s. All right. Americans regionals fly one. American has a 190 base in Philadelphia. So you so actually we, fly the regional. We, so, I mean, Americans flying 190s with mainline pilots, uh -huh. but their regionals are flying 175s, which look almost identical yeah. from the same gates. <laughs> right. It gets out, confusing. You know, you know, hey, Ajax, follow the American 190 coming from the left. Well, there's like four, you know, <laughs> right. jungle jets coming from the left. Which one's the 190? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could you please give me a hint? Which one of those is a 190? So as a GA guy, I mean, I, I don't often, but have fairly regularly flown into a couple of airports that are frequented by at least some of the regionals and some larger uh, mainline aircraft. And from my perspective, I look at it as if you're not using a call sign, you're using a tail number, which I can understand there might be confusion between regional carriers and mainline. But to me, at least there's something to go on where a tail number, I can't read the tail numbers of the other aircraft on the ramp. And, yeah. you know, when you're in the air, it doesn't really matter. I can't, you know, I can't see you close enough to identify the aircraft. And if I can, there's a much bigger problem than who is it. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially for me in a 172, but, um, but at least, you know, you have something to go on, whether you know that connection or not, if you don't know the connection, then you're no worse off than the tail number. And if you do know the connection, then you have a lot more information. Another time, because um, otherwise, what I mean, unless there's some other scheme that I'm not aware of, if you're not using a call sign, you would just be on the tail number of the aircraft, right? Yeah. Sometimes, though, like yesterday, we had this happen. We had uh, we were Ajax 200, and there was a Southwest 200 on the same frequency for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I guess the flip side of that is you're more likely to repeat numbers if you're going on call signs, and that yeah. that's a fair point. And then what makes it worse uh, is when guys don't they just completely drop their call sign and then mm -hmm. just use their number. Yeah. And when you're when there are a couple of different airlines with the same number out there, it gets confusing. It's actually, you know, that's that's you know bordering on a safety problem. Colonel Jeff, we have a few uh, where we get similar call signs at some point on our route because uh, the schedules mix up with an airline that does that, which is why we've taken to putting a letter at the end of our call signs now. And yeah, so, we call those stubs. Do you? When we you call them we call them letters. Because <laughs> 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 
<laughs> well, in the U.S. of A., we don't call them letters. We call them stubs. <laughs> it's that whole English versus American thing. <laughs> you guys think up a name for a letter. Um, so a, B. <laughs> what do you call them? <laughs> so, uh, so that helps us distinguish. So where, where there's been a report of a, uh, a call sign confusion, then the next time you go there, you'll probably find that it's, uh, you know, Acme Red 200 Yankee or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Deanna Tickle <laughs> finally says, thanks. And she says, I'm a non-pilot fan who loves aviation and just took my first flying lesson. So I think that deserves a round of Yay! applause. Well yeah, good job. And I would say that you're wrong, Deanna. <laughs> If you just took your first flying lesson, you are a pilot. Yes. You're a student pilot. Yes. Yeah. So get that straight. And uh, since, you were, <laughs> since you landed safely enough to write this feedback, you obviously survived. So another round of applause. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Yes. <laughs> well done. Well done. Well done. Well played. All right. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Uh, the second the show ever. I know it's going to, well, you know, we've only been going for a little over two hours. You know what we should probably do? And we two just hours. started the feedback. Um, but, you know, usually about this point, we play the most interesting and uh, most popular part of the show, which, of course, is this uh, stuff that the old pilot puts together for us, whoever he is. And uh, he has uh, the plain tale for this episode uh, entitled Fighting Fog. And without further ado, here we go. The old pilot's plane tails, fighting fog. Launching a thousand bomber raid took organization and preparation. Timing was critical, and whether it was the RAF's bomber command with their Lancasters, Stirlings, Halifax and Mosquitoes at night, or the 8th Air Force's B-17s and B-24s by day, the risks were high, that many would not return. Whether from their multitude of bases in Lincolnshire, such as North Witham, Woodhall Spa, Curtin in Lindsay, Elsham, Wolds, or elsewhere, they would eventually turn away from their targets and set course for home. Many would be damaged, perhaps limping along with an engine out, with low fuel, but once past the enemy coast and within Britain's fighter cover, the tension would start to drop away. After struggling for many hours to stay alert to every danger, fatigue would take hold and men would relax, thinking that there was little to do but find their home airfield, land and then there would be a hot breakfast, perhaps with some eggs and a warm bed waiting for them. But after surviving this far, a cruel twist of fate awaited some of them. Whilst they had been away, conditions at home might have changed. The notoriously fickle British weather might have summoned up a thick soupy layer of fog that would obliterate the ground from view. 
Under a clear sky in falling temperatures, humid air struggles to hold moisture in gaseous form and with a little mechanical turbulence to help, as the wet and dry bulb temperatures become equal, radiation fog would start to form. Or it might be a layer of low cloud over the chilly North Sea just off the Lincolnshire coast that drifted inland on an easterly breeze to cover the airfields in advection fog. Whatever the cause, as the pilots and navigators picked their way through the hundreds of other aircraft around them, their hearts would sink when this stuff of an aviator's nightmares started to obliterate familiar landmarks and, more importantly, the vital strips of concrete that they needed to land on. In the words of one B-17 veteran, The first view of the White Cliffs of Dover was always a most beautiful sight, but there were frequent weather problems in England in the winter. Days were short and there was almost constant fog and haze. Returning planes had to disperse to descend through the fog. Nearing the base, any plane that was damaged or carried injured crewmen left the formation early, fired a flare and landed first. With as many as 42 airplanes returning at once, it was sometimes a mess. In another account, an unfortunate mosquito crew of the Pathfinder force was trying to land in fog at RAF Upwood. They were coming home from a night mission to Cologne, and on returning from Germany at one in the morning, the fog was very thick. On its landing attempt, the mosquito overshot the runway and crashed into a house on the edge of the airfield, catching fire. An eyewitness recalled, I was on my way to bed when we heard this terrible crash and rushed out to see the quarters ablaze. Up in a window we could see three of our lads who had just come back from a raid. They still had their uniforms on. They couldn't get out and we couldn't get in to help them. There was nothing anybody could do. Then they disappeared into a cloud of flame and smoke as their building collapsed on them. I came across the bodies of the mosquito pilot and navigator. They were still in their flying kit, but that was all that was holding them together. They were all smashed up and... When each body was put in a blanket, it just folded up into a ball as if there was nothing left of them. Now, that really shook me. The old fogs of England, particularly London, had become notorious. Coal burned in homes and factories, which gave rise to a mixture of smoke and fog that could cause impenetrable pea-soupers, would last for days, even weeks. In the countryside, the normal winter weather of low cloud, drizzle and fog also caused many problems. Loss rates amongst the returning bombers grew. Often large areas would be simultaneously fog-bound and it became the usual procedure when all other options, such as a diversion, had been exhausted for the pilot to point the aircraft towards the sea and then, just before crossing the coast, order the crew to bail out, leaving the empty aircraft to crash into the water. 
As the size of the bomber raids grew to many hundreds of aircraft, this could amount to a large loss rate. Crashing whilst attempting to land in dreadful visibility was common, and with it came the loss of vital, well-trained and experienced aircrew. Even a successful parachute jump was rarely completed without injury. Arthur Clifford Hartley was just the kind of engineer that the RAF needed. Born in 1889, he worked for the railways before joining the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War. He qualified as a pilot and rose to the rank of major before joining the Air Board, where he was involved in the development of the interrupter gear that allowed forward-firing machine guns to fire through the propeller arc of an aircraft. In the Second World War, he helped to develop the highly accurate bomb sight that allowed precise delivery of such weapons as the five-ton Tallboy, which was used against the German battleship Tirpitz, with such devastating effect. Between the wars, Hartley had worked in the petroleum business, and Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris approached him in the hope that he might come up with a solution to the losses he was incurring in bomber command due to fog. Hartley went to work, and before long he came up with Fido. No, not a dog to guide the bombers back home, but an acronym for the Fog Investigation and Dispersal Operation. The principle that they developed is formally attributed to Dr. John David Maine-Smith, an ex-Birmingham residence and principal scientific officer of the chemistry department of the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. Before long, patent number 595907, titled Dispersing or Preventing Fog in General, example on roads or airfields, was lodged with the Patent Office. The description goes like this. Fog is dispersed by the use of luminous flames of strong emissivity, extending over a wavelength of 1 to 10 microns, and produced by liquid fuel supplied under pressure to burners, constructed and arranged so that the wide-angled cone of fine spray from any burner does not overlap those of adjacent burners. Burners three feet apart, giving a maximum flame diameter of two and a half feet, are preferred, using an alcohol-petrol mixture containing 20% by volume of petrol. In practice, FIDO was a secret system that consisted of large storage tanks for the fuel, a pump house, and then a line of pipes which were laid along the sides of the main runway. At short intervals on the pipes were spray nozzles that would disperse the fuel which, when lit, formed a blazing wall of flame that shot several feet up into the air. Its first success was gained on November the 4th, 1942, when in Hampshire a dense fog of 50 yards visibility was cleared by petroleum burners in an area about 200 yards square to a height of 80 feet. By January 1943, large-scale runways had been constructed for further experiments. These were on the same scale as actual operational runways and had the advantage of being available for experiments by day and night. After the war, the presence of FIDO was revealed to the British public in The War Illustrated. To quote, 
Its crew consisted of a sergeant, three corporals and 17 aircraftsmen. The pipes through which the petrol was pumped enclosed the runway in a rectangle and through small holes at intervals in the pipes blazing petrol vapour was forced under great pressure billowing several feet high. It obviously had its difficulties. The rising air and turbulence made the landings problematic, and should an aircraft have trouble and veer off the runway, a wall of flame awaited. But it was certainly better than trying to land in fog. However, the cost to an embattled country tight in the grip of rationing when every drop of petrol was precious, was enormous. It consumed vast amounts of fuel in the order of 100,000 gallons, that's 450,000 litres of petrol an hour, and airfields with longer runways could use over twice that amount. On November the 19th, 1943, Fido first came into operational use when four Halifaxes landed successfully after a bombing mission to the Ruhr. Though the surrounding visibility was only 100 yards, ten minutes after Fido had been lit, the visibility on the runway increased to the equivalent of two to four miles. The apparatus frequently cleared the air to a height of several hundred feet, with the result that the sky and stars became visible over the runway. There were obvious worries when Fido was operated, as the glow of burners on an aerodrome was, on occasions, seen by air crews over the North Sea and from the Dutch coast, and could easily attract enemy bombers. As one pilot described it, even in poor visibility, the massive glow from the flames could be seen many miles away, and it was a comforting sight. We were guided down individually into the installation, and when touching down it was like entering a well-lit tunnel, even if the visibility outside was almost nil. It was certainly much preferable to abandoning one's aircraft by parachute, as had been the old solution when dense fog obscured the runway at base. However much the cost of the fuel, when compared with the aircraft losses, it was considered an acceptable trade, as this interview with Air Vice Marshal Bennett, the chief of the Pathfinder Force and bomber leaders, explains. I think the public should know that Fido, in this war, has saved over 10,000 aircrew lives. Moreover, Fido has made it possible to carry out operations in base weather which would have stopped all flying in the past. An example of that was when, in the Ardennes offensive, Brunstedt tried to break through. Bomber support was necessary, heavy support, and the pathfinders re were required to mark. But pathfinder base weather was fog, thick fog. The pathfinders were rare, however, because Fido made it possible for the pathfinders to take off and land in spite of this thick fog. However, it's been of tremendous value uh, to crews returning from operations to know that they could get down at their bases, regardless of the weather. Fido was fitted to a total of 15 RAF airfields. RAF's Blackbush, Bradwell Bay, Carnaby, Downham Market, Fiskerton, Falsham, Gravely, 
Ludford Magna, Manston, Melbourne, Metheringham, St. Evil, Sturgate, Tuddenham and Woodbridge. But on occasions, even that wasn't enough. It was the night of the 16th of December and Bomber Command had been back to Berlin yet again. Over 700 people on the ground were killed, although German records were no longer as accurate as they had been. 25 Lancasters were lost to fighters and anti-aircraft fire over Germany. Worse was to come as the bombers returned to England in the early hours of the 17th to find that many of their airfields were fog-bound. With a dense fog obscuring much of the country, the RAF crews were faced with enormous difficulties in landing. The airfields at Bourne and Gransden Lodge were probably the worst hit. Visibility was dropping progressively with every minute that passed. By midnight it was down to 300 yards or less, and it took about a 1,000 yards to stop a Lancaster. By the early hours of the morning, the cloud base at Gransden Lodge was at 100 feet and the visibility very poor. The situation became desperate as the planes began to run out of fuel. Some crews abandoned their aircraft and bailed out. More died when they crashed on landing. Black Thursday, as the day became called, saw the loss of 25 Lancasters during the Berlin operation, but a further 31 were lost due to the fog over England. The aircraft crashed or were abandoned when their crews bailed out, or in the case of two unfortunate crews, they collided over Lincolnshire whilst waiting to land. Other aircraft, Stirlings, Halifaxes and Lysanders, variously on gardening, training or special duties flights, also crashed due to the fog. In total, Bomber Command suffered 327 deaths and the loss of 70 aircraft on this day. The death toll for the bad weather crashes in England was close to 150 not counting those who died later of their injuries. By the end of the war, new and more sophisticated systems were being employed. G, a radio navigational aid, which was very accurate over England, would help the returning aircraft to locate their home airfields, but it was too imprecise to actually direct them down onto a runway. However, the standard beam approach, which was installed at base airfields, became available. Referred to as landing on the beam, SBA employed signals emitted by beacons in line with the main runway. These beacons sent out a code to the pilot, which showed if he was straying off course, dots to one side, dashes to the other, and a steady note if he was right on track. The pilot first picked up the sound from the outer marker of the airfield and once on top of it and in the cone of silence, he checked his altimeter to determine his angle of approach to the runway. He then passed on to the inner marker for a similar procedure. If his height and speed were correct, it was okay to attempt to land blind for he still could not see the runway in front of him. The margin for error was exceedingly small, and each failed attempt brought an increase in danger.
there was also the considerable pressure of having a dozen or more aircraft stacked up at different heights, all running short of fuel and all wanting to get down. After the end of the war, Fido continued to be used for a while at some military and civil airfields in the UK, such as Manston and Blackbush, and in the United States, where it was further developed into a version called Elma. It was partially installed on the number one runway at Heathrow, but never became operational. Of course, the development of the instrument landing system, the ILS, would obviate the need to burn vast quantities of fossil fuels, which in these days of global warming is probably a good thing and definitely going green. But during the dark and difficult days of the Second World War, Fido was undoubtedly a lifesaver for many, many pilots. Again, what what a great uh, you're such a great storyteller, Nick, and and thank you so much for uh, for for doing that episode that regarding was a good one. yeah about well, how they the 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 way I've never they, heard of that stuff yeah it's pretty amazing. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jez. Uh, I, I think he's was on Slack. Jez B. I don't know his full name, but thanks to him for suggesting it. I did know about Fido. Um, I didn't know it had been uh, used in the States, uh, and it was used at several airfields. They had a sort of a gas uh, version rather than a petrol version. I guess you have more gas in the States. I don't know. Well, we it's the current. It's a diet. <laughs> Beans. Exactly. But it, it was a bit of a lifesaver. But of course, uh, you know, you can only get a certain number of airplanes down when you only had 15 airfields and, uh, you know, you were trying to get a thousand bombers back. Uh, what amazed me was the fact that this uh, instrument system they had very basic. Um, the guys uh, hit the inner marker, which we ha- used to have on old ILSs, probably still around on a few. Normally occurs at around decision height, 200 feet. They'd hit that, and then they'd just set up a rate of ascent and hold the heading and just wait until they impacted on what they hoped was the runway. Uh, I just find that incredible because, mm-hmm. you know, if we didn't see anything, we'd just be straight or go around. And they, uh, they, those guys, so brave, just pressed on into the fog, um, you know, just hoping for the best. So That's pretty surprised. much the way we do it on the Mad Dog, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't think that's the official. <laughs> I hope the FAA doesn't listen to this program. No, that's but it's it's standard for the seven three. I know, but I didn't think it was that bad on the map. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have a HUD. <laughs> oh. You know, that's not really a HUD. You know, it's just a bit of glass they stick up in front. <laughs> they painted some stuff on it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. I had one that didn't work the other day, and it was so re- refreshing not to have to use that <laughs> stupid thing. <laughs> really? Is that your feeling about it? You don't like the... Uh... Well, no. Nick will understand. Nick, on the F-18, yeah. where was the HUD? It was about two and a half, three feet in front of you, wasn't it? Up on the glare shield? Yeah, yeah that's right. Right in front of your face. On the yeah. 7.3, it's about where your microphone is. What? It's right, it's right there. <laughs> Well, that's off the end of your nose. That's pretty ridiculous. much. It's about six inches in front of your face. Oh wow! No, I wouldn't enjoy that very much. I can't stand it. <laughs> Every time I try and drink my coffee, I keep banging into it. Yeah. Well, the good news is it folds up. 
an origami hunt. That's very clever. (laughs) (laughs) Tends to break the glass if you don't fold it right. (laughs) That's a a little bit expensive. I love it. Uh, Okay. Uh, Going back to our... This is going to be one of those shows where we don't really do a lot of feedback. We're only on number two. Uh, two and a half hours. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Uh, we're going to, there's an, there's one, at least I know for sure that we want to play on this episode, but uh, we're going to do this one first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Christian wrote in, uh, he says, sigh. Eric Hannity screws up again upon checking into Twitter and my favorite aviation journalist, Tom Podolek. I think that's the way you pronounce it. I'm not sure. Podolek, Podolek. I was greeted by the news that uh, Air Canada 5 from Montreal to Tokyo's Narita Airport exited the runway onto an under-construction taxiway. Apparently, due to some uneven ground, it took ground crews five hours to get the Boeing 787, this is where Nick makes a snide comment, uh, pushed back onto the runway that had also been closed since the plane went the wrong way. And then he. No, I'm not going to say anything. I I knew Narita well when I operated there, and the ta- some of the taxiways there are so complicated and so poorly labeled. I really am not surprised. My, the turnoffs from the runways are usually fairly clear, but uh, it, they have one of the most complicated ground movement maps you've ever seen in your life. So yeah, I've never you know, been there. So give the guys a break. Okay. I can't imagine that there wouldn't be barriers of some sort. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? That, that would really be helpful, Mind you, wouldn't it? If, if they're Boeing pilots, they probably just went straight through. <laughs> so we were... Uh, at, at least they had engines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, good wow. point. Good they, point. Didn't, they didn't pick those nasty English ones. <laughs> uh, it's British, uh, British. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we have trouble with that, uh, as you know, Nick. What's the difference between British and English? I know, I know the difference. I'm just kidding. Um, please don't tell us. Um, uh, we don't have time. We have to keep going here. Uh, but uh, Ken and I were at uh, Pittsburgh International on the first day of the trip, and they had all kinds of taxiway closures. Yeah. And they had, luckily, they had all kinds of cones everywhere, and we were kind of having fun and saying, you know, he was telling me he would give me a certain amount of money per every cone that I hit. And, uh, he didn't take me up. On no, it. I didn't take him up on it. I uh, thought, nah, it's not worth it. That's going to be much more expensive than whatever he's going to give me. All uh, right. Um, sorry to hear it's not, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it's the Air Canada pilot's fault, but you know, there are extenuating circumstances so we can all, you know, we can all um, sympathize. sympathize. Thank you, <laughs> or emp- empathize, sympathize, whatever. Um, I'm not going to do number three on this show. That would be just too long and drawn out. But what I'd like to do, let's skip to number seventeen. This guy. Oh my god. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, we'll get back maybe at some point <laughs> to the other ones. But look, look at the time. Um, Captain Steve, Steve Horn. Uh, you'll know him as the guy that does the wonderfully produced uh, How I Got Here, H-I-G-H, installments that we have every so often. And they're uh, really well done and very interesting to hear about some of the people that he's flown with, how they got to the point where they are in the regional airline. He is a, a captain, line check airman for a regional carrier 
So very highly regarded, very professional pilot. And of course, uh, his aspirations were beyond being a line check airman and captain for a regional airline. He wanted to fly for something a little bit more mainline and more major. And, uh, well, let's just listen to some feedback he sent in. This is a little bit different because normally we don't hear Steve's voice, but we're going to hear from Steve right now as he is driving to work. Good morning, APG community. This is Captain Steve speaking currently from the left seat of my car as I make the drive through the early morning mist, the sun just peeking above the horizon. On my two and a half hour drive from my hometown to the Detroit Metro Airport. I don't normally make this drive to work. Usually it's commuted on board an Acme Airlines Airbus or 717. But today, out of necessity, I'm forced to make this drive because at the end of this trip, they'll take my airline ID and I wouldn't have a way home. That's right, after 11 and a half years, today I begin my last trip as a pilot for Acme Junior. 11 and a half years have been spent here. Eight of those is a first officer. Thank you, age 65. The remaining is captain on the CRJ aircraft in this last year, one of the most challenging yet rewarding experiences of my career so far as Czech airmen training and polishing the new hires and new captains of my airline. And now I get to step into their shoes as new hire at a company we'll call Acme Purple. I'd like to thank the cast and crew of the Airline Pilot Guy show for your knowledge, for your encouragement, and for your support of the community that has been built around this show over the years. I shall now do my part to pull back the curtain on the cargo world, to stare into the Bermuda Triangle, to explore that black hole that has somehow sucked in Miami Rick. <laughs> Clear skies, tailwinds, keep the dirty side down, and any other aviation cliche to all. Sounds like he was drinking on the way to... Uh... <laughs> Congratulations, Steve. Wow, that's uh, great news. I know that he was looking forward to doing something like this, and uh, it's a very large uh, cargo freight outfit here in the United States of America. And uh, I'm so excited for him. I know he's excited to uh, be embarking uh, in, in, in on this wonderful adventure and advancement of his uh, career. And... Uh, uh, wow, we're we're very pleased and tickled that uh, you you got this job with this uh, with this company uh, Acme Purple. Acme Purple. Okay. Yeah. So um, there is a. Um, so we have a government here that they sometimes call the federal government. No, you don't. No, you don't. You, you'd like to think that's a government, but it's not. I promise you. <laughs> well, that's not. Just, just get beyond that. <laughs> federal is the key word, and then um, we. We'd like, uh, like on the show, we'd like to express our uh, feelings about things. We'd like to really express how we feel about things. 
Is that helping at all, Nick? No. Acme okay. Purple. Okay. Whatever. Um, so he's what? He's uh, uh, taking Amazon packages around the world? Oh, I don't know. No, actually, he's not participating in uh, the uh, the whole Amazon thing. But uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a company in the United States Flying of America. Flying rubber dog out of Hong Kong? <laughs> well, that's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Probably. And, and second day delivery or next day delivery is uh, also an option for your plastic dog poop. Purple versus brown. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a there very uh, highly regarded uh, freight company here in the. Uh, well, I, I I only hope he's going to have enough time because Miami Rick doesn't seem to have enough time for podcasting anymore uh, to continue to produce his fantastic. Uh, interviews because I have to say they're an absolute highlight. They're little gems because they don't come out very often, but when they do, I think they're fantastic. I love uh, them. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's you know I mean, Plain Tales and uh, How I Got Here by Steve are just like you know the the best produced stuff that we put on the show, and I'm very blessed that uh, you guys actually contribute that to our little thing here that we do every week. Um, and I'm, I, I think that he kind of promised that he wasn't going to stop doing that. So oh, I hope great. that he holds great. to that. But I think the most important thing that, that, that he said in his communication with us is that he is going to really try to find Miami Rick because I don't know where he is myself, have no idea where, you know, he's off the map and, uh, uh, I really hope that uh, at someday and Miami Rick, if you're ever listening to this, I doubt it. If, especially at the uh, two hour and forty five minute point in our show, <laughs> I'm sure you're definitely not listening. But if you're listening to my voice, we love you, we miss you, we want you to come back, man. Yeah, get and, out of uh, the gym. Uh, yeah. yeah, take the watch <laughs> off and um, and come and chat to us. Yeah. You know, it's not the same. Just berating Boeing without someone to come back at me, you know? It's, that might it's be like, the reason why. <laughs> Jeff, I can confirm that Jeff still has this crickets button in and among the many things he's got going you. on over here, just waiting for Rick to come back. Rick, come yeah. on, that's your bumper right there. Yeah, that poor bloody cricket. It, it's still going after all these years. What do you feed it on? <laughs> Beer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a beard. Oh, no, I got cricket. frogs going now. Shoot. Uh, we haven't heard them for a while. Thank we haven't God. heard them either. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this uh, this iPad on my lap that has the soundboard, oh, on, and uh, I thought accident. you were reaching into your trouser pocket. <laughs> well, <laughs> family show. <laughs> family show. <laughs> uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. We, we already you know covered what? that story about Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it wouldn't be an APG if we didn't play some of these these clips that we like to play. Like, uh, let's see. Do you have the APG syndrome? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. <laughs> I got a bad case APG syndrome. Well, I gave you a going APG green reference. Yeah, you didn't pick up on it. We're going green. Ah, we're going green. Well done. Captain and they always Jack. could have gone around a bit in the same way. I have right. a distinct yep. impression Did that tomorrow's ride is going to be different than the last two days. <laughs> we're going green. Hey, shut up. <laughs> you can always go around. There we go. 
I was telling Ken about the show and all these little uh, bumpers that we play and that uh, they become earworms for people. And uh, if, if you ever listen to the show more than once, you'll, you'll be like all the rest of us when we're flying around and we're discussing, we're briefing our approach and we're talking about the go around. And then all of a sudden in the back of our heads, we're hearing this, you can always yep. go around. And if you do that in the cockpit and people have no idea that you do a podcast, that's <laughs> not necessary. Well, I, I've that. done it, uh, humming it to myself, hoping that I say it out loud. And my, my <laughs> first also thinks I'm calling for a go around because this can happen one day if I'm not careful. I'm sorry. You said go around. Yes, sir. <laughs> exactly right. I do no, the no, same no. thing, Nick. I'm sitting there going, it's going through my mind. I better shut up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, quickly, number four. Uh, Logan writes, Logan Lynch. Hi, ABG crew. I started listening to your show a week ago. Why I haven't discovered podcasts before last week is beyond me. I'm loving it, though. I have a private pilot's license and have had a love for aviation for as long as I can remember. Unfortunately, I work long hours every day while living in rural North Dakota. So my flying opportunities are limited as of now, but listening to you all each week helps keep the fire burning. Thank you, Logan. And you know, I'm glad that you're out there listening. I'm glad that we're helping that fire burn. And, uh, uh, we honestly, we do this, selfishly because we really enjoy just getting together and being with friends every week and talking aviation and beer and whatever else comes to comes to mind but uh thanks for being out there Logan. new symptom i didn't know i had somebody got a fever for the apg syndrome (laughs) yes are are you trying to get me to play like go around sillin or something like that i'm not sure where that is in my soundboard i don't see it but there is go ahead pardon Pardon? I was just thinking, it's, it's, I always think it's sad when you hear of a pilot who just can't quite afford or whatever reason can't fly. It, yeah. it, it's just, you know, someone who has a love for aviation and feels they're grounded. That's, you know, that's just such a sad yeah. situation. I it feel is. that person's pain. For <laughs> <laughs> the reasons I've explained to Jeff, but will not bring up on the show. Yeah, yeah. There's a, he has a very interesting story and it's ongoing. Yeah, it is a sad situation. Oh, thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you. And so all I need to do. I know you're 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 really really your hammer, Nick. (laughs) So sad. It's not as easy as you think it is. Okay. Uh, you designed that control board like a mad dog. That's what it is. Oh, <laughs> no. that explains everything. <laughs> and I have no idea where anything is. Um, I'm just trying to go through, scroll through the uh, current show folder here to find something because we're getting close to the end of the show. I don't want to try to take on something that. Oh, let's just quickly. We talked about this on a previous show that um, video of the drone that was stationed on departure oh. and took the video of a uh, 380 taking off from uh, Mauritius. Again, I feel like I'm not pronouncing that right. No, uh, no, that is right. Mauritius. It just doesn't sound right to me. Anyway, uh, Seaside Jake and Ken uh, sent in some feedback regarding this. This is number 10. Um, and they said uh, just some feedback from episode 334 regarding the drone video of the A380 takeoff. Uh, This YouTube video gives some great analysis in two parts, uh, assessing that it is real, according to their uh, 
their their uh, opinion. And so we'll put a link to this these videos regarding the analysis. And I guess they're these are people that are serious drone pilots, and they kind of go through step by step laying out their their uh, theory that this whole thing was a real video. I still think it looks fake, but you know, I'm just a. I almost wanted to say it's. It almost looks like CGI, yeah. which you know, like the background may be real, but I think it's almost like it's photoshopped in kind of way with CGI. They composited you know, kind of like, in. Yeah, they composited yeah. the. Uh, yeah. Because the the Emirates, it just looks like the airplane's just way too clean looking, and it has the that sun glint. As it's yeah. going along the top of the fuselage is almost too perfect. It's that just, glint is the thing that made. Yeah, me the glint is almost. I think if they didn't put the glint in there, I think it would have been pretty. And the runway doesn't. I mean, I don't know how big the runway is at Mauritius and how wide it is. The airplane just looks. It's it's wide. It's too wide for the runway. Yeah, I'm not sure about like, that. You know, the taxiway it looks wider than the runway does. Somebody was saying that. Well, you know, they don't fly 380s in there, but they actually do. I they think actually the, do. Emirates yeah, has a couple a flights per day, so. Uh, yeah, so I guess the uh, you know the 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 jury is still out on this, but uh, they are pointing us to a couple of, of videos that uh, seem to think that this was real. So we'll put I want to see the show. video of that guy who flew one by my window last month, a couple months ago. Oh, nice! Eleven thousand foot runway. Eleven thousand foot wide. runway. Yeah, it doesn't say how wide it is. So yeah, yeah. I think Jeff is more. Why, con- uh, why do you want to see that, Colonel Jeff? Who was in your bedroom with you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the window of my airplane at 8,000 feet. Oh, oh right. that's right. Yeah, we uh, played. Well, how long ago was that, Jeff? That, uh, I think it was in May. Okay. Phoenix. Yeah. He was taken out of, of, out of Phoenix Sky Harbor and uh, almost hit a, a drone at, what, 4,000 feet or something like that? Eight. 8,000 feet. 8,000 wow. feet. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we played the ATC audio of uh, Jeff on there talking about it. And you haven't heard anything? There was no follow-up on that? No, I mean, uh, I got a report from uh, the Tracon at Phoenix, and they didn't see it on radar, and no one else reported seeing it. Hmm. I mean, I filed the FAA reports and the company reports, but that's all I heard. Huh. Well, hopefully we'll, no, we'll never hear anything about it. Never mind. I'm not even going to waste my time. Um, quickly, Texas Charlie uh, sent this Howdy APG crew. Actually, he says gang. Uh, okay. Time to wade into the field, uh, mire of politics. Get your hip waders on. It's going to get deep. Now, normally we don't even talk about politics on this show for a good reason, because many of us hold different political views. But uh, he includes or attaches a Seattle Times opinion piece, uh, providing insight into a mindset that might be rather different than many of us, but still deserves discussion. The headline reads, Time to retire the Blue Angels. I thought this horse was dead. Pardon? I thought this horse was dead years ago. Apparently not. The author, Patrick Pilcher, does not seem to be uh, anti-military as he states a need for a strong military, but he, well, right. But he sees the Blues as a barnstorming recruitment tool whose budget could be better used to combine the Navy's vast technological training programs with the outreach capacity of local state employment offices to devise a cutting edge program to help those suffering from long-term unemployment or those seeking to retrain after a layoff. So he basically <laughs> his, his point is, you know, they spent a lot of money on this uh, demonstration team and it's not necessary. I think that people that listen to this show would agree with me that 
are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, we live for air shows and demonstration teams. And you guess what? There are a lot of people that go to these air shows that, um, if they had not gone to an air show would not have any idea about this wonderful world of aviation that we all geek out with and in, and, uh, having, I know it costs a lot of money, the blue angels, thunderbirds, the red arrows, but it's, it's a very valuable promotional tool, uh, whether you're going to put yourself into the military or not. Uh, it's, it's something that uh, everybody can kind of rally around and get behind and, and be proud of. And I just don't see, you know, getting rid of the, the blue angels demonstration team would do any good whatsoever. And that's my, and I don't opinion. know how the blues do it, but the, uh, for the Thunderbirds in a matter of hours, the airplanes can be fully combat ready wrong colors, but they can be, you know, fully loaded up pylons on weapons loaded. They're maintained for combat readiness. Yeah. And, you, know, you give them a couple more days and they can even be the right color. So those guys still maintain their training right. even while they're doing the shows. Yeah, I'd love to do combat against them with their smoke on. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I've got. I've just got to say this. Uh, demonstration you teams are a <laughs> demonstration teams are a tiny, tiny proportion of a defense budget. Yes, but it's a chance for the public to see their tax dollars being used, and, and it, for them. Because they don't get to see the benefit necessarily of engagements uh, in foreign countries, and they know there's an enormous amount of sp money spent on their behalf. But this is just a tiny chance for the government to give back to the public and give them a chance to revel and enjoy the patriotism, enjoy the, the view of uh, seeing their fighter aircraft, seeing their pilots doing a damn good job in a way they can understand. And from that point of view, it's absolutely golden. You just cannot get away, get rid of these teams, wherever, whichever country. And apart from that, it's a matter of national pride. And in America, I know that's very important. You know, you look at the feedback that you guys did from Farnborough and all the feedback from Oshkosh or, you know, any of the, the feedback we get from listeners who are been to air shows where the Blues or the Arrows or the Thunderbirds have been, and any demo team. And the oohs and ahs and, you know, the impression that those flying skills leave on the general population is just immense. And so many people get either may go into the military or just get into flying because of seeing one of these demos. Exactly. So there's a private joke there. We want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> we saw that. Yeah. No, no, no. Come on. Come uh, we'll on. No, I was, was I was just pointing out what was being said it in the chat room. It wasn't a joke. It was uh, <laughs> our main man Micah in the chat room says the Thunderbirds are combat ready, but the Blues are not. The Blues are the, using the oldest stuff in the fleet, about to be retired. The Thunderbirds are given frontline aircraft, and I'm thinking. So I told Robert, well, I don't think I'm going to mention this on the show because that would not really support our feeling about these demonstration teams. Uh, but uh, even if they are flying the oldest stuff in the fleet, these pilots. <laughs> They can step into any Hornet and be fully great combat. formation takeoff. Well, I mean, I was going to yeah. say, is if, they can mount, if they can mount weapons to the aircraft, they can fly them in combat anyway, even if they're, they're the oldest ones out there. But yeah, it's time for Nick to show Pretty much it. everything the Navy has is the oldest because they do boats first. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, they have different yeah, priorities. I anyone, I think. <laughs> but the, these guys are usually uh, have done tours uh, on the front line. They, they're taken off the front line for one or perhaps two tours uh, with the Blues or whatever, and then they're back on the front yeah. line. They won't have forgotten their skills. Uh, and they, they could be taken out of those jets put anywhere, and they'd do a good job, I'm sure. Um, I mean, they might miss the hotels and the girls and the free cars <laughs> and the watches what? and the fancy flying nah. suits and things. I mean, that would never happen. But I think I think uh, sh- the point should be made, by the way, and I think that Nick and Jeff would agree with me and Ken, that um, all of the guys that do these demonstration teams, they're really good pilots. I mean, they really audition and to get in there. But you know what? The training that they received is the same training that Ken and myself and Jeff and Captain Nick received in, in our respective military services. And guess what? This this is what we could all potentially do. You know, it was it, it, they went through the same training we did, like you said. And, it's, you know, if we had the time to, to spend doing the formation, we'd be just as good as they are. It's not that they're... Right. They're... Give it on such a grand scale, you know, yeah. in four ships and six ships and eight ships, and uh, and that stuff, you know, the stuff that you see them do, maybe a smaller scale, um, is the same kind of stuff that we do when we learn to uh, fly as military pilots, and uh, you know, it's it's, uh, and we love seeing them do that, and we we respect the fact that they are they have very highly honed skills. Uh, but uh, the point is that I think it's a very it's a very inspirational thing, even for those of us who did this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, here we are as, as you know, the three of us, all mili- four of us, all military pilots, and we go out there and we watch that. We're just as impressed, you know, as the civilians yeah. who can't imagine doing that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'm telling tales out of school here, but when I was, uh, and uh, I know Nigel's in the uh, chat room, he will have done this as well. Uh, when we finished uh, our students t- towards the end of their uh, fast jet training course, so they would have had about 200 flying hours total experience. We, if they were particularly good students, we would uh, lead them and perhaps do a formation aerobatic. So we'd do a loop or a barrel roll or something with them. Uh, and they would be solo hanging on our wing through an aerobatic maneuver in close formation, which is the sort of confidence level we had in them. And they could do that after 200 hours. Any military pilot that's got any uh, skills would be able to do that with a great degree of accuracy after several thousand hours. So, yeah, it, it's it's not easy, the job they do, and they've got to be great um, ambassadors for the military. Uh, and they've got to be good pilots, but it's not a skill that needs an, an exceptional amount of ability. Um, yeah, they're, but right. they're, having said that, they're damn good. I, I love what they are. Them. Oh, they are. They're, I'm not t- trying to especially like, take away that anything. Bunch, especially that Spanish bunch. That <laughs> Riyadh. <laughs> 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 Yeah, they were fantastic. So, Particularly the guy that dropped out of formation halfway through, and and he he got it, and he took him two maneuvers to get back into position. I thought that was really there. good. So Rick, I mean Nick is talking about the uh, Riot uh, thing that we <laughs> oh, went to. I, I apologize for any Spanish listeners. I'm only so, joking. Honestly, no, they were fantastic. But honestly, <laughs> the guy that was the uh, commentator, I th- really thought. I looked at Nick and I said, "Is this a joke?" <laughs> it's because it really sounded like somebody who was like pretending to have a Spanish accent and saying the most ridiculous things about this Spanish 
demonstration team. And again, if you're Spanish, I'm sorry, uh, but they were very impressive and all that kind of stuff. But the commentator. <laughs> oh, he had us getting giggles, didn't he? Oh, because <laughs> he was he was saying stuff like, uh, it's a very expensive pilot. And I think he's trying to say experienced pilot, but he's an expensive pilot. So I, we were, I was just giggling. <laughs> oh, come on. He's speaking a second language for crying out loud. Exactly. <laughs> so that's, I mean, right. yeah, right, me trying to do Europe, Spanish would be English. like. All right, yeah, Jeff, yeah. next podcast, you have to do it in Spanish. Yeah, no, no, thank you. That would be very ridiculous. Dos cervezas, por favor, mi amigo. So anyway, love the skills, uh, all the different countries that we saw at Riyadh, uh, the Spain, Spanish, the, uh, the, the, the Swiss, the French. The Italians were good, weren't the they? The Italians were good. They and, were uh, and even the Brits were good. Uh, what are they called? Oh, that thing that, that's a shock. They were I know. good. The, the dead sparrows, they're called. The dead sparrows, <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, well, that with that, I think it's time to end our show. We're uh, kind of beyond our three-hour point, I think, by now. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and uh, wrap this thing up. Sorry, we didn't get to all the uh, feedback that is in our feedback folder, yeah, but you we know. Have way too much. <laughs> we do yeah and of course you know that that first news item took a, a lot of time but uh, i think we, you know it was well worth spending the time on it i think that it was a it was a good discussion about that uh, event in northern cal uh, northern uh, well in washington state uh, seattle area so um anyway if you're new to the show uh, we'd like to issue our apologies uh, for for this mess and uh, and uh, you probably want to go and find something better in the aviation podcasting world but you know we're glad that you were here and listening to this one uh, if you're still with us if you want to learn more about the show you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com and it's a great website that uh, we maintain and uh, you can find out more about the crew the community which of course is the best part of this whole thing the community uh, we just do the show to support the community actually uh, the uh, coffee fun merchandise and a lot more uh, we have apps for the iPhone and Android uh, platforms if you want to check those out they're free they're ad free and you can get push notifications and all kinds of fun stuff if you want to do that um, we're also on social media and Captain Nick is going to tell us about that uh, yeah, social media, it's that thing you click on when you want to tweet or uh, go to Facebook. So uh, on Twitter, you can uh, address us as uh, at APG Crew. I was going to say you can address us as Captain Jeff, <laughs> but um, at APG Crew is uh, the uh, handle to use. And on Facebook, you can find us at Airline Pilot Guy. So just search for that. You'll find us no problem. And we're also on a... Um uh, on a uh, kind of a quasi-social media. <laughs> Hillel, come on! What is done. wrong with? I think it's this is bordering on disrespect at this point. Um, come over here. Tell us about Slack, please. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plane Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India one one echo one and see you in Slack. Wow. 
Thank you, Hillel. And uh, now, please, go back to the back. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> uh, it's time to say, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks Cheers. for inviting me. Thanks, you. Thanks, everybody. Good day.